Welcome to Skywave Audio Theater. I'm your host, Norman Gilliland. Kathleen Height was born in Wichita, Kansas. Her father was a cattleman, and so was her brother, who later operated the family's ranch in New Mexico. Height's grandparents had settled in Kansas, and she recalled that all of her family were great storytellers, telling about their lives on the frontier. So young Kathleen was well qualified to write about the West, especially after she majored in journalism at Wichita State University. Height became the first female writer for CBS, but it wasn't easy. She wrote mostly Westerns for radio and TV, hundreds of stories that were rich in detail. This one is called The Payroll, and it's Fort Laramie from September 16, 1956. Raymond Burr as Captain Lee Quince. Specially transcribed tales of the dark and tragic ground of the wild frontier, the saga of fighting men who rode the rim of empire, and the dramatic story of Lee Quince, Captain of Cavalry. Maybe I'm wearing thin on this stable detail beam. This is three days running we drew this duty. Anytime you want to tell me something I don't know, I'm willing to listen, Harrison. Tomorrow morning, come fatigue call, I got a mind to bust out of line and volunteer for something more elevating. I don't see how there's a job on this post more elevating than readying up a stable. You ain't ever got a complaint, have you? There's a long list of things I ain't never got, Harrison. A man ought to want change in his life. He ought to seek it out, try for it. Change, that's what keeps a man's interest alive. When you bust out a line tomorrow morning, why don't you volunteer for post chaplain? Now, you think you got off a good one there, don't you, Beam? You're just right pleased with your fine touch of humor. I thought you knew I was comical. Oh, I'm standing here near busting laughing. That's how comical you are. I'll make this arrangement with you, Harrison. I won't talk to you if you won't talk to me. I'd admire to do that. I just admire to. Bean? Come on, Beam, you hear me all right. That's one of the shortest arrangements I ever had. Yeah, well, let's rest a spell. I'm agreeable. 
Rest a spell. And have a chalk. You're getting more likable, Harrison. No sense in us going at each other. Working as close as we do, living as close. I want to make friends with you, Bean. Starting when? This minute. You ain't one for ceremony now, are you? Couple of good friends where we are. It's only right we should rest a spell and have a chaw. I'm willing. You, uh, got a chaw, ain't you? You talking about tobacco? Of course I am. I can't call the time I had a plug tobacco. You lying to me, Bean. Now, we being such good friends the way we are, why should I lie to you? You're chawing, ain't you? Been chawing all morning. Well, sure, I'm chawing. You ain't chawing tobacco. What are you rolling around on your tongue? Shifting one side of your mouth to the other. Knickknick. Say that again. Knickknick. You being comical again, Bean? Uh, you're just a boy. I keep forgetting. You don't recollect the war much. Now, recollect the war better than I recollect that king. Whatchamacallit? It's bark. Injuns taught us Yanks about it. Red willow bark, I think it is. Anyways, they'd cut it deep from the trees, cut it into shreds. Uh, they used it most for smoking. You cut into any red willow trees up here on the high plains, Bean? Well, not me. But last time we was down on the agency, I got me some. I swear you're lying to me. Boy, here, here, in my pocket. Help yourself. You hankering for chaw? Makes one. Well, it's dry sand. Well, you've got to work it some. Oh, you... Yeah. Yeah. Tastes funny. <coughs> you, you sure this stuff's off a willow tree? Red willow. <coughs> <coughs> or... How come they look so pleasing and taste so bad? Well, I didn't say it was good. You wanted a chaw, I obliged you. Yes. Yeah, I said you was just a boy. Well, sometimes I'm hungry. I don't eat a polecat because that's all I got handy. You got a taste for tobacco. Why don't you buy yourself some? The settler keeps a fine line. A bull Durham, Sealand, North Carolina. You know why I don't buy. I got no money. Same as you. Same as every trooper on this post. That paymaster ain't been through here in four months. Before that, it was six. No money. Plenty, he won't give me no more credit. You ain't all alone, you know, Harrison. Ain't nobody been paid in four months' time. I'm gonna do something, Bean. I don't rightly know what it is now, but that Pliny, he's going to give me some more credit somehow. Major Daggett, sir? Oh, Captain Quince is about to send for you. Yes, sir? Ah, I thought this morning's drill went very well. Seemed to. But there's one thing that's becoming a problem... Selecting my orderly for the day. I want you to give some thought to it. In what way? Well, as I say, the drill seems sharp enough. Soldiering generally is good. The men are keeping the post in good order. The men themselves are the problem about this orderly business. Let's see now. The book says the neatest and smartest trooper will be chosen as orderly of the day for the commanding officer. It's supposed to be an honor, Captain. A recognition for good soldiering. 
Lately, my orderlies have been smart enough, but the neatness is severely lacking. I'll speak to B Company about it, sir. We still employ laundresses at Fort Laramie, Captain. And the clothing allowances are far better than they used to be. Well, when they come. Now, what do you mean by that? Just that the paymaster hasn't stopped here since mid-spring. Four months. I'm aware of that. Summer soldiering's tough, Major. Campaigns are hard, weather's hot. Neat and clean is a big order. A good soldier will still make the effort. Pass the word, Captain. Yes, sir. Oh, now then. You want to see me about something? Yeah? The paymaster. I wondered if he's heading our way at all. Are you running short of funds, Captain? I'm not asking for myself, sir. Uh, let's see. Last word I had, he was here at Fort Omaha. And with the stops to make between here and there, I can't say with certainty when we should expect him. Hmm, that'd mean stops at Fort Kearney, McPherson, here at the North Platte Station, and Fort Mitchell before he gets here. Uh, unless he cuts off down to Fort Sydney after he leaves North Platte Station. Well, four months is a long time for the men to go without pay, Major. I know it. Unfortunately, the route and schedule of the paymaster is not within my province. Oh, uh, are there hardship cases, Lee? I'm hearing no complaints directly. I don't like it either. But they're fed and clothed, and I'm sure Pliny's doing the best he can in the way of extending credit. <laughs> you are? Well, he'd be a fool not to. Pliny likes money, Major. Got a real respect for it. I don't think he feels just the same toward extending credit. It's not enough. No, that's not nearly enough. Oh, I might want to put it in a safer place, though. Yes, I might want to do that. So I just put it in these sacks here. Well, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it feels good. Huh? Mm -hmm. Morning, Pliny. Be with you in just a minute. What do you call that stuff? Uh, why, money, Sergeant. <laughs> yes, money. Oh, now, Pliny, you don't call that money. You get alone with a couple of sacks of that, and you know blame well you call it uh, sweetheart or something loving like that. Oh, that's not true. No, no, no. I call it money. Now, really, I do. Money. Mm -hmm. What you gonna do? Bury it? See if it'll grow? Indeed not. That can be very dangerous, you know, burying money. Just... Say, you're getting some shin plasters in there with the big bills. Uh -uh. Oh, my, I wish they'd quit making them. It's confusing. You think you got a nice roll of bills, and then some of them three-cent notes get in there, and it's... Gee. Besides, it won't, you know. <clears throat> it won't? No, indeed. No, indeed. An exploded theory years ago. <laughs> what is? If you bury money, it will not grow. Well, now, I learned something today. Yeah, yes, many years ago, too. Let's see here. Now. Ah, there, that completes... Ah, now, I'll just put these sacks in my safe and everything. Uh, are you wanting to buy something? What kind of cigars you got? Oh, well, oh, we got some fine Havanas, just the best there is. Here, I keep them over in the cabinet by the door. 
under lock and key. Pliny. Uh, it's me, Sergeant Gorse. Yes, I see you. Oh. Oh, yeah. Well, I've got long nines, supers, and short sixes. And I got a three-cent shin plaster. Where? Right here. Oh, yes. Yeah, so you have uh, three cents. Well, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now these short sixes are nice. They give them away in saloons. Oh, they give them away? Free? Try not to think on it, Pliny. It might make you queasy. Free? Oh, my goodness. No. Sometimes I pay as high as a cent for two of them. Two for a, for a cent? Well, now, I... Um, well, I might let you have one super, but just one, mind you, for uh, three cents. I had my mouth set for a long nine after supper. Oh, now, now, you don't really expect that, Sergeant. A long nine for three cents? Why, I'd stand to lose... Oh, yeah, let me see now. You'd stand to make two cents, easy. But these are from New England, Sergeant. Tell the truth, I'm running short of them. Now, this is the last barrel, and I... You're practically forcing me into a saloon, Pliny. Uh, uh, You're really desperate for a good smoke, aren't you? Not near as desperate as you are for my last three cents. You, uh... Won't bandy this about the post? I could bandy my head off, and there wouldn't be no run on your store, Pliny. The way that paymaster takes his time, I stand to be one of the few men at Fort Laramie that still got a three-cent note. Yes, well, now, let me see. Long nine? All right, help yourself, Sergeant. To one for three cents. Afternoon, Mr. Sabbats. Oh, good afternoon, Captain Quince. Working on your journal and taking the air at the same time, huh? Too hot in my quarters, but more of a breeze out here. Uh, you feel the breeze off these planes. You're an optimist, Mr. Sabbats. It's hot. Hot as sin. Wonder if it's this hot where the paymaster is. Not near as hot as where most of the men wish he was. Oh, I didn't mean that, sir. I did. <laughs> you feeling the pinch, too, Mr. Sabbats? No, no, sir. I'm fine. Thank you, Captain. I, I was just thinking maybe it's the weather delaying the paymaster again. Last time it was snow. It was last month, wasn't it? Well, last month you passed that tobacco around among the men. My uncle sent it, the one in Connecticut. I wrote him, sort of suggested it'd be nice to get some more, but either he hadn't gotten the letter yet or he didn't get the idea. It was a good thing, Mr. Sabitz. Thank you, sir. You, uh... You still serving on the Council of Administration? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, I am. Still have charge of the post fund, do you? That's part of the duty. How much money in it? Let me see now. I have the exact figures in the ledger up my quarters. I'll run up and get Oh, them. never mind that. You've got an idea how much, haven't you? Well, I'd have to think a moment. Uh, according to the general orders, the sutler pays ten cents for every officer and enlisted man. That's ten cents a month, payable every two months. About... $30 a month, then? Uh, roughly that. $360 a year. Have we had any cause to disturb it recently, Mr. Seibertz? Well, we bought garden seeds a couple of months ago. That's in accordance with Provision D of the general orders. Mm-hmm. And before that, we took some out to buy newspapers. 
That's according to the last part of provision C. I just wanted an idea of how much, Mr. Seibert. Um, I, I think close to $500, very close to that. Uh, suppose we let the men draw on it till the paymaster comes. Draw on it? Yeah, borrow it. For what purpose? Mm, tobacco, beer, whatever use they want to put it to. But the general orders are specific as to the uses of the fund, Captain. I'm aware of that, to Make but an I... independent decision... That is to say, this order comes from the adjutant general's office. I have a copy of them here. When I was appointed to the Council of Administration, I made the orders part of my personal record. Uh, no need to read me the orders, Mr. Simon. Oh, no trouble, sir. I'll be glad to refresh my own memory. Um, oh, here it is. General orders number 22, dated April 7, 1866. <clears throat> Well, the first part deals with the sutler requiring that he make this payment for the privilege he enjoys as post oh, I just thought if the men could look on it like it was their own money, not a handout... Well, here's the part be... I was talking about, sir. The post fund is to be used for, A, the expenses of a bakehouse, B, the establishment of a post school for uneducated soldiers who might desire schooling... Oh, and for the children of the soldiers. I was thinking more like a plug of See, tobacco... See, the establishment or... of a library and the purchase of newspapers... D, for the purchase of garden seeds. Oh, that's the provision I mentioned uh, previously. Tobacco or a glass of beer. You know, this hot weather, a man ought to enjoy a glass of beer. And then if he finally, wants. provision E provides. Mr. Seibert's. Yes, sir? I'm getting the idea there's no provision for beer and tobacco when the paymaster's late. That's correct, sir. I'm sorry to say that there isn't. Well, thank you for your time, Mr. Seibert's. Uh, Captain Quince, I could get a letter off to the adjutant general's office asking for clarification. Oh, no, that's a bad habit to get in right in Washington for clarification. You get into that, you'd have to give up soldiering. Maybe I'll go face him alone, Beam. You could linger outside here in case I needed help or like that. You got a scheme. I want to hear what it is. I had a scheme I wouldn't mind telling you. First thought comes fresh into my mind. I'm going to say it to Pliny. Sometimes the first thing I think is best. You want to take some knick-knick before you traipse in there? Might work up your courage. I want no such thing. You linger here now. I close the safe. Take your time, Pliny. Uh -huh. yes, uh. <laughs> ah, there we are. Now then, what can I do for you? Uh, it's you, Trooper. I thought it might be a customer. I mean to be. Now, what I had in mind... Uh, Trooper Harrison, we've been through this before. Many times. Oh, any number of times. We have no such thing. Not this a credit. Time. I've been extremely generous about extending credit. Not recent, Jane. Oh, but you're wrong, you're wrong. Last evening, I was looking over my accounts. Now, uh, the paymaster is four months late, as it is. Yeah, I know that without looking into my uh, accounts. Hear me out, boy. Now, hear me out. Well, I discover that if you give me your full four months' pay, we'd still have some accounting to do, you and I. You think I'd come in here, face the shame of asking your favor, if it wasn't real important? 
Well, I don't know, would you? A man's got his pride, Blanny. Yes, I suppose so. And next to a man with good credit, give me a man with pride. Every time. Every time. It's my ma, Pliny. My old gray-haired ma. No. Oh. Guess you know how I feel about my old ma. Well, of course I do, indeed. Of course. Your old ma. Why, sure. Well, now, she's got a big day coming real soon. And it come to me. Say, another big day? What do you mean? Well, last night. You remember the accounts? I noticed she had a birthday just a few weeks ago. She did? Yes. Oh, we got up a nice selection of gifts for her. Half a dozen plugs of tobacco. And it seems to me we tucked in some cigars for Mother. Fine Kentucky woman, my old ma. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the month before that, on her birthday, we bought Mother two jugs of whiskey and a pipe. Well, now, you recollect about them jugs. Remember they got broke over in the barracks? That's right. That's right. Got broke. And not a drop of whiskey reached the floor. Oh, yes, I remember that. Oh, yeah, well... Uh, when is Mother's birthday uh, this month? Oh, now, it's not her birthday this time, Pliny. It's this time, well, uh, this time she's... Hmm? She's, uh, having a baby. A baby? Oh, Mother is having a baby. Oh, my. Fine Kentucky woman, my old ma. Yes, isn't she? Oh, we'll want to do something about that now, won't we? Yeah. I thought we'd get up another batch of plug for yeah. some cigars. And this time we'd take special care of them jugs don't get broke. Oh, all the care in the world, yes, for mother. Yeah, I'll give you a hand. You want to start putting everything together? Yes. <laughs> yes, I'll just get this done. Yes, yes. What you doing? I uh, hear now you write down mother's address. Write it down for what? For the parcels. My goodness, we're not going to take any chances this time. No, sir. I'll march these to the post office. Mail them to Mother myself. Oh, Pliny. No extra charge, none whatsoever. Captain Quint's reporting, Major. Well, sit down, Captain. Well, thank you, sir. Well, I guess this is the news we've been waiting for. The paymaster? He's at North Platte Station awaiting our escort. You want the duty, Captain? It's all right with me. Pick your men. Leave as soon as you can. Yes, sir. If things go as they should, you'd be back here by late Friday, right? Right. Good luck, Captain. You worried about the escort, Major? Of course not. You know what I'm worried about. Yeah. Well, I'll stop in Laramie Village if you like. <laughs> Warn them to get ready for attack. I suppose I could double the guard starting Friday night. But no, it wouldn't be fair, would it, Captain? Wouldn't do much good either. Maybe just have the officers stand by as usual. That's all we can do. Well, move out, Captain. Yes, sir. Four months payroll for 300 men. Well, 
You might not have a problem, Major. We always do. I don't see how we can avoid it this time. Well, maybe we'll be lucky. Maybe we'll be hijacked on the way back. came as soon as I could, Captain. I never saw anything like this in my life, sir. Quite a sight, Mr. Cybert. Are, uh, are all the men accounted for? They won't be for days. Some of them we may lose entirely, Mr. Cybert. You mean desertion? Uh, a few. Some of them just been waiting for money enough to get out of here. I've got a fresh new batch to tend to. Oh, oh. from the village, Captain. Well, they look kind of limp. Yeah, and I had to help them get that way, sir. Harrison there bought a raft of lead powder in town. He had in mind to blow Piney up, he said. Well, the hospital's full. They're stacked three deep in the guardhouse. Well, just take them to their barracks, Sergeant. Yes, sir. Cybert? Yes, Captain? There's still a guard around the powder magazine? Oh, yes, sir. Major Daggett's directing that personally. Good. The men, they wouldn't bother the powder magazine, would they? They might, Mr. Cybert. Might blow up Fort Laramie, or they might just pool their money and buy it. This army might do anything on payday. Fort Laramie is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and stars Raymond Burr as Lee Quince, Captain of Cavalry, with Vic Perrin as Sergeant Gorse. The script was specially written for Fort Laramie by Kathleen Height, with sound patterns by Bill James and Tom Henley. Musical supervision by Amerigo Marino. Featured in the cast were Howard McNear, Sam Edwards, and Clayton Post. Jack Moyles is Major Daggett, and Harry Bartell is Lieutenant Seibert's. Company tension. Dismiss. Next week, another transcribed story of the Northwest Frontier and the troopers who fought under Lee Quince, Captain of Cavalry.
This is Norman McDonald. 67 years ago, as the first hint of autumn stole across the Laramie Plain, the decree was issued to close Fort Laramie as a military post. It was a routine order couched in the clipped, impersonal language of the Army. Fort Laramie had served its purpose, close it down. Put a period to a chapter of history, put an end to an era, that's what the decree really said. For the abandonment of the fort on the Laramie marked the closing of the frontier. The story of Fort Laramie is a monument to ordinary men who lived in extraordinary times, of a land that was new and untried, as cruel as it was beautiful. It's the story of small numbers of men with good in them and bad, heroism and cowardice, honor and dishonor, ordinary men, Ordinary men whose enemies were the rugged, uncharted country, the heat, the cold, disease, boredom, and perhaps, last of all, hostile Indians. Men lived at Fort Laramie and men died there. Of drowning, freezing, typhoid, smallpox, some may even have died from boredom. But it's a matter of record that in all the years the cavalry was stationed at Fort Laramie, only four troopers died of gunshot wounds. And so we mark the 67th anniversary of the closing of Fort Laramie, glad of our chance to reopen it, to tell the story of a proud landmark of the Old West and the ordinary men who served there. That was one of the many stories that Kathleen Height wrote about the details of life on the frontier. It was the payroll, Fort Laramie, from September 16, 1956. Height's early ambition to become a writer for CBS was helped along by a shortage of writers during World War II. She said that a producer needed a radio scriptwriter, any radio scriptwriter, and there I was. Jack Benny is next, here on Skywave Audio Theater. After about 20 years on the air, the Jack Benny show was as good as ever. It was better, in fact, in some ways. It had the advantage of a cast that remained loyal to the show, who became like family. Jack's wife, Mary Livingston, 
Eddie Anderson as Rochester, who joined the show in 1937, announcer Don Wilson and Dennis Day, and also bandleader Phil Harris. And it continued to sound a lot like theater with a staged quality to it. You could almost visualize the entrances and exits from the stage. Given his reputation for penny-pinching, it's a wonder that Jack Benny took a vacation in Europe, but in the broadcast at hand, he and the gang have just returned from various European cities, most memorably Venice. From September 13, 1953, here's the Jack Benny Program. The Jack Benny Program. The program starring Jack Benny with Barry Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, the Sportsman's Quartet, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, it is morning, and as we look into Jack Benny's home in Beverly Hills, he and Rochester are going over the bills that have accumulated during their absence in Europe. Uh, here's a bill from the gas company, $8.50. $8.50. Electric bill, $9.75. $9.75. Uh, here's a bill from the telephone company, $6.40. Wait a minute, why do we have to pay the telephone company? They couldn't get in to open the coin box. (laughs) I wonder how much my share will be this month. (laughs) Now, let's see, I paid my cast and writers for the first show. Oh, yes, I have to mail a check for commission to my agent. I've been meaning to ask you about that, boss. How does your agent get to the bank? He doesn't. The warden deposits it for (laughs) me. Oh, uh, say, boss, uh, isn't your agent in for 20 years? Yeah, but he gets 10% off for good behavior (laughs) Uh, What else have you got there? Uh, Here's a bill from your dentist, he wants $100 deposit My dentist? Oh, yeah, send that bill to my sponsor After all, it was his idea, you know I'll get it Hello? Well, how are you? Yeah, we've been back from Europe three weeks now. Sure, you can come home anytime you want to. Goodbye. Who was that? Your parrot. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be good to see Polly again. Now, let's finish these bills. I don't want to waste all day. Yes, sir. Uh, Here's one for your automobile insurance. Wait a minute, boss. This premium seems too high. It's $93.50. No, 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 Ross. That's not the premium. That's uh, that's what the car is insured for. Isn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah, I see it right here. It's covered for fire, theft, and rheumatism. Oh, stop. Is that all? No, there's still one more bill. It's from the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas. It's for thirty dollars and twenty cents. That's right. I was up there for three days. I see my room was ten dollars a day. That's $30. Pay it, Rochester. Uh, What's the 20 cents for? I gambled a little. (laughs) I was up all night trying to break even. (laughs) You know, sometimes... I'll get it. Hello? 
No, no, the address here is 360 North Camden Drive, not 350. Goodbye. Stupid parrot. <laughs> Some birds can't find their way to Capistrano. She can't even find her own house. Now, Rochester, take all these bills and... Come in. Well, hello, Dennis. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Every time I come to your house, you ask me the same thing. What? For ten years, I've been coming to your house, and it's always, Hello, Dennis, what are you doing here? Look, kid. Just once, I'd like you to say, Hello, Dennis, glad to see you. Come in and stand on your head. <laughs> Dennis, why, why should I ask you to stand on your head? Well, you know it's a long walk. My feet hurt. Well, that's ridiculous. Dennis, you only live two blocks from here. Why is it such a long walk? I always get lost. But there's nothing to it. Why didn't you just come down Rexford and walk up Sunset Boulevard? Oh, I'm afraid to pass Gloria Swanson's house. <laughs> what? If she killed William Holden, what chance has a jerk like me got? <laughs> Look, Dennis, do me a favor, will yeah. you? Go outside, I'll close the door, and ring the bell again. Okay. Well, hello, Dennis. Come on in and stand on your head. Now leave me alone. Yes, sir. Now maybe I can... Not on the piano! Look, kid, I didn't ask you over here, but if you came to let me hear your song, let's hear it and then go home. Okay. Hold it a minute. Yes? How do you do? <laughs> I'm from the telephone company. Oh, yeah, it's right over there on the wall. Thank you. My, it's heavy this time. Yes, business was great when the Shriners were in town. I'll dump them out right here on the tape. Gee, look at all those nickels. Here I go to divide the dough, and when I'm through, I'll scrammy. One for me, and one for you, and five for Uncle Sammy. <laughs> Yes, mustn't forget him. My agent did, and look where he is. <laughs> now, look, mister, would you mind counting those coins in the other room? Uh, no, no, not at all. Thank you. Go ahead, Dennis. Let's hear your song. Yes, you? sir. Oh, 
many dreams have been brought to your doorstep. They just lie there and they die there. Are you warm? Are you real, Mona Lisa? Fine, Dennis. Very good. You can go home now if you want to. Dennis, I said you can go home now. Dennis. Oh, isn't that cute? He sang himself to sleep. <laughs> See, he must have walked a long way to be that tired. Hello, Jack. Hello, Mary. Come on in and stand on your head. I mean, come on in. About. Nothing, nothing. Dennis, wake up. Huh? Oh, hello, Mary. <laughs> hello, Dennis. By the way, Jack, I haven't seen you since last Sunday. Did you read all the reviews on your opening program? Yes, most of them. I, I thought they were nice. The reporter in Variety said you were better than ever. I know, I know. Luella Parsons said you got loads of laughs. Yes, yes. <laughs> Hedda Hopper said you were dynamite. Yes, yes, I know. Erskine Johnson said you weren't the least bit funny. Him I'm suing. <laughs> Uh, what what other write-ups were there? Did you read the review in the Herald Express? No. You can take that one to the Supreme Court. <laughs> no kidding. Was it that bad? Ooh, was it? <laughs> I thought you went home. How can I? My shirt's in your bending. <laughs> well, go and get it. Mary, getting back to those reviews, I can't understand it. Everybody seemed to like the show. Even my mother. Oh, your mother. What does your mother know? She liked it? <laughs> yes, I got a letter from her yesterday. Oh. I brought it over. Do you want me to read it to you? Yes. I mean, if she liked my show, certainly go ahead. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> my darling daughter, Mary, just a note to tell you, we heard Jack's opening program and thought it was very good. Well. It's about time. <laughs> Hmm. We'll soon be able to see Jack, too, as we have a new television set. Oh. Papa didn't want to pay all that money for a set, so he built his own. Something went wrong, though, and when it was finished, the screen was one inch high and seven feet wide. <laughs> it works all right, but Hopalong Cassidy looks like he's riding a snake. <laughs> That's silly. A screen one inch high and seven feet wide. I wonder what Faye Emerson looks like. <laughs> Read on, Mary. Here's some good news about your sister, Babe. About Babe? Oh, goody, goody. Babe is very upset because she wasn't selected to go to the Atlantic City Baby Beauty Contest as Miss Plainfield, and I don't blame her. 
Even though I'm her mother, I must admit that Babe has the prettiest pair of knees in New Jersey. It's a shame they're in the back. <laughs> Lucky her feet are on backwards. She'd look awful. Jack. Oh, I'm sorry, Mary. <laughs> no other news except that I'm very angry at your father not speaking to him. What? Last month was our anniversary, and I told him I wanted to see South Pacific. So he took me to New York and shoved me on a banana boat. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> Have to close now, but we'll write again soon. Your loving mother, Valley High Livingston. <laughs> You know, Mary, if your mother lived here in Hollywood, I'd give her a job as a writer. I'm not kidding. Say, excuse me, Winner, will you? Where are you going? I'm in the kitchen. I want to get a glass of water. Answer that, will you, Mary? Okay. Hello? Well, how you live? What are you doing at Treasure Island? <laughs> well, I had nothing to do, so I dropped in at Jack's house. Social or Bendix? <laughs> Social, Phil. Where is Jackson? He'll be right back. He's getting a drink. No, don't tell me the old man is finally gone. Here he is now. Oh, Jack, Phil. Oh. Hello? Hiya, Jackson. Been nipping a bit, huh? <laughs> yes, Phil, I had a glass of water. Nice, plain, cool water. Water? Yes, water. What's in your swimming pool? Remley, we're playing Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> all right, all right. What did you call for? Oh, I want to find out about rehearsal. Oh, you do, eh? You want to find out about rehearsal? Well, Mr. Harris, for your information, rehearsal was at my house last night. Was I there? <laughs> no. Well, I can cross that one off. <laughs> now, look, Phil... I think we ought to get something straightened out right now. This is the start of a new season. When I call a rehearsal, I expect everybody to be there, and that includes you. Now, this is your last warning. Hey, Jackson. What? If you didn't need me, I'd be scared to death. <laughs> need you? Phil, I need you like my agent needs a tuxedo. <laughs> now hang up and I'll see you tomorrow. Goodbye, Phil. Good night, Irene. <laughs> what a guy. Say, Mary, it's getting kind of late and I'm hungry. Would you like to stay for dinner? Oh, sure, Jack. I'd love to. Where's Dennis? Well, he went out while you were talking to Phil. Good, good. I'm going to get Rochester started with dinner. Okay, I'll just sit in here and play the piano. This thing is out of tune. <laughs> oh, what a piano. No wonder nobody puts nickels in it anymore. You'd think you'd at least... Oh, Jack! Never mind, I'll get it. Hello, Don. Well, hello, Mary. Is Jack in? Yes. Is he expecting you? Yeah. Jack brought me a gift from Europe, and he wanted me to drop by and look at it. Just look at it? 
Well, he said he'd give it to me today if I promised not to expect anything for Christmas. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, come on in. Ah, uh, you know, Mary, I envied you and Jack traveling all over Europe. Well, I must say it was exciting, Don. We had so much fun in London, Paris, Rome, Venice, and... Venice? Jack didn't tell me about that. Well, he wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> what are you laughing at, Mary? <laughs> well, Jack will never tell you, so I will. Well, go ahead, Mary. I'd love to hear it. Well, after Jack finished his engagement at the London Palladium, we went to Paris. From Paris, we went to Rome. And while in Rome, we decided to go to Venice. Gosh, those canals must be fascinating. Oh, they are, Don. Anyway, we arrived at night, checked into the Grand Denali Hotel, and the next morning, I met Jack in the lobby. Jack, did you get the tickets for the sightseeing tour? Yes, Mary, and the gondola will leave in a few minutes. Gee, I'm sure looking forward to it. Senior Benny? Yes? I am the belly captain. Oh. The gondola for the sightseeing tour, she's about ready to leave. Oh, good. We'll, uh, we'll be right out. Uh, grazie. Oh, bell captain, should I bring my coat? Signorina Livingstone, this is a sunny Italy. We have the same climate you have in California. Bring your coat. <laughs> I thought so. Come on, Jack. Gosh, Jack, what a thrill. This is the first time I've ever been in a gondola. Yeah. I didn't know it helped so many people. I'm sure glad we came on this sightseeing tour. Oh, Jack, the guide is getting up to point out the places of interest. Yeah. Come on, Mary, let's get closer to him. There's so many interesting things in Venice. I don't want to miss a word he says. Excuse me. Excuse me. Jack. Excuse me. Excuse me. Jack, you're you're close enough to him. Just a little closer. Excuse me. Excuse me. Is it there or molto distretti, famosi storici palazzi che sorcomande, ma questo uomo ha un piede sul mio. What do you say? What do you say? Huh? What do you say? What do you say? In 20 anni che faccio il gondoliere non ho mai visto un animale come questo e ancora mi pesta il piede. What do you say? What do you say? Huh? Huh? What do you say? Huh? What do you say, Mary? What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? Yeah. Just a minute, Mary. Uh, say, mister, do you understand Italian? Yes, I do. Oh, good, good. What did he say? He said you're standing on his foot. <laughs> oh, oh, I I'm sorry. I'll step back. Miss, shall I help you get him back into the boat? Or did you push him? Certainly not. Please help me. Here, Jack, take my hand. Easy does it now. There we are. <coughs> Thanks, mister. Oh, boy, am I wet. What do you say? What do you say? Huh? What do you say? He said you're dripping on his leg. <laughs> If he thinks I'm going to step back again, he's crazy. <laughs> Say, wait a minute. Aren't you Jack Benny? Yes. In a sona proganda artista Kelly Cantatinelto, the Europa sona vista. Wait a minute. I thought you couldn't speak Italian. Uh, what did Mr. Benny say? He said he was a sensation at the Palladium Theater in London. <laughs> 
that he can say in Chinese. Oh, shut up! Mary, please. What did he say? What did he say? <laughs> he said, he said we are now approaching the plaza, which is famous throughout the world for its singing gondoliers. And you better sit down. Our gondola is starting to move again. Gosh, I wouldn't have missed this trip for anything. It's so picturesque here in Venice. Oh, Jack, look at those signs along the side of the canal. Signs? Yeah. I'll see if I can read them as we pass. Prandera un punta. De uno que canasco. Talia tuo burpa. Manon tuo naso. Burma shave. <laughs> Mary, where does it say Burma shave? On that last sign. Bermada radera. That's Burma shave. Bermada radera means Burma shave? Holy smoke. I better learn what these Italian words mean. Why? I had that on my strawberries this morning. <laughs> See, I'll just have to Jack, do... sit down. You're rocking the gondola, and we're getting into heavy traffic. Yeah, just look at all those gon- gondolas going in every direction. So what if they don't bump into each other? <laughs> What's that? It's that man sitting over there in that little boat. He used to work for the traffic department. <laughs> what? Uh, what's the matter with him? He went crazy trying to paint a white line down the middle of the canal. <laughs> Well, that is a problem. Why didn't he try watercolors? <laughs> Jack, look out! <laughs> Mary! Mary! I knew this was going to happen. Miss, are you sure you didn't push him? Of course not. Now help me get in the boat. Okay. No, no, don't grab by the hair. <laughs> Boats are too narrow. What do you mean, too narrow? You fell off the Queen Mary. <laughs> Only one. Gee, I'm cold. I think I. 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 Uh. Achoo! Rattrata un coscia. Thank you. He said break a leg. <laughs> It sounds so nice in Italian. Jack, why don't you just sit down and enjoy the ride like everybody else? Okay, but gee, I'm so wet. Well, it's your own fault. Signore, signori, noi al passo il famoso spazio far qualche spesa in Venezia. The guy just said we're passing the shopping center of Venice. Oh, yeah. Look at those little stores right out on the water. Gosh, it's the only place in the world like this. Yeah, and Mary, look at that store on the end. It specializes in gondola accessories. Manny, Moe, and Luigi. <laughs> See, the place in Los Angeles must have stolen its name from this one. Oh, signore, signori, no, passi il famoso americano riunione spazio in Venezia. The guy just pointed out the famous American rendezvous in Venice called Harry's Bar. Oh, yes, I've heard of that. 
See, that's where all the Americans in Venice come for cocktails. We must go there, Jack. Yeah, and say, Mary, did I tell you the wonderful joke I made up about Phil Harris? I'm going to do it on our first broadcast. Oh, look, Jack, you're on a vacation. Forget jokes. No, no, Mary, this will be sensational. Now, get this. I'm going to say this on the first broadcast. I'm going to say that when we were in Venice, Phil Harris went into Harry's bar and sat down at a table with one of the natives. Phil took a drink. And then the native took a drink. Get this. Then Phil took another drink, and the native took another drink. They kept drinking and drinking till the native couldn't see anymore. <laughs> What's funny about that? Mary, don't you get it? Phil is the first guy in the world ever to drink a Venetian blind. <laughs> Good night, Paul. Benny program is written by Sam Perrin, Milt Josephsberg, George Balzer, John Tackerberry, Al Gordon, Al Goldman, and produced and transcribed by Hilliard Marks. Also got Scarlet Queen star and producer Elliot Lewis in there in the cast during the Venice visit, along with Jack Benny's cast of regulars. And that broadcast came from September 13, 1953. After 20 years on the air, the Jack Benny show was still tops in the ratings. It was number one in 1955. We have a mystery next, a medical mystery with Dr. Kildare here on Skywave Audio Theater. As he took on a medical mystery each week, Dr. Kildare occasionally got into the issues of the 1950s, and one of the issues of the times was teenage substance abuse. But unlike his colleague, Dr. Gillespie, Kildare wanted to find the causes behind the medical conditions of his patients. And so it is when a young woman turns up unconscious near Blair General Hospital, Kildare has to learn how to deal with the patient and her parents, too, at least one of them. From September 14, 1950, this is the story of Dr. Kildare. The story of Dr. Kildare. Whatsoever house I enter, there will I go for the benefit of the sick. Whatsoever things I see or hear concerning the life of men, I will keep silence thereon counting such things to be held as sacred trusts. I will exercise my art solely for the... The story of Dr. Kildare, starring Lou Ayers and Lionel Barrymore. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer brought you those famous motion pictures. Now this exciting, heartwarming series is heard on radio. In just a moment, the story of Dr. Kildare. But first, your announcer. Now, 
the story of Dr. Kildare, starring Lou Ayers as Dr. Kildare and Lionel Barrymore as Dr. Gillespie. Blair General Hospital, one of the great citadels of American medicine. A clump of gray-white buildings planted deep in the heart of New York. The nerve center of medical progress, where great minds and skilled hands wage man's everlasting battle against death and disease. Blair General Hospital, where life begins, where life ends, where life goes on. Yeah, Hurley's my name. Should have brought a doctor. She's in bad shape. Yeah, she looks it. What happened? She walked in here about five minutes before midnight, stood there by the door a second, and she fell flat on her face, out cold. Ever seen her before? No. And don't get any wrong ideas. She didn't buy it in here. Didn't buy what? Smell her breath. So that's it. She's drunk. Boy, this younger generation. Just a kid. Seventeen at the most. Oh, well... Give me a hand here. We'll get her out to the car. You going to take her down and book her? Planning to file charges? No. Just get her out of here. That's all I care. I think I'll take her over to Blair Hospital. Come on. Give me a hand. Okay. She seems to be responding to the caffeine a little now, Dr. Gillespie. Good, Jimmy. At least that fluttery pulse is beginning to straighten out. I think you can start giving her the oxygen now. Keep her on it for a couple of hours or so. She'll pull out of it all right. Yes, Doctor. Oh, Sergeant, mm-hmm. it's a good thing you brought her here. That alcohol in her bloodstream running over three parts in a thousand. Well, she really needed a doctor. Well, I didn't have the heart to run her in, Doc. She looked too young, I guess. Very too pretty. <laughs> Find anything in her purse? Uh, yeah. Match folders and three different bars, for one thing. I'll pay him a little visit in the morning. She's an obvious minor. Any identification, Blaine? Marion Lewis, according to the card here. Uh, dress on the Upper West Side. Nearest relative's her mother, Mrs. Clyde Lewis. Same address. <laughs> well, she certainly had one too many to find her way there tonight. Mm, this girl's had a dozen too many, so it wasn't any accident. She did it on purpose. I wonder why. Uh-uh, Jimmy, stop right there. You're going out on a limb again. Uh, why should she deliberately set out to knock herself silly? What's behind it? I don't know. And if you're planning to butt in and try and find out, you can do it alone. Count you out. That it? Uh, confound it, yeah, sure. I'm getting too old for this probing into patients' lives. I see. It's a case of acute alcoholic poisoning. Oh, let's leave it that way. You just treat her and release her. All right. Nobody's pushing you. Dr. Kildare, the oxygen equipment is coming up in the freight elevator. Good, Barker. Oh, Dr. Gillespie, do you mind if your able assistant stays here and helps me? Of course I don't mind. Glad to get rid of old Snoopy for a while. Well. <laughs> uh, I guess I better get going, Jimmy. Want to check with the precinct desk and notify the girl's parents. All right, Blaine. I'll let you know how she gets along. I'll walk out with you, Blaine. I never like to interfere with Kildare's cases. Thank you, Doctor. Oh, 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 there is one thing, Jimmy, though. Just for the report, of course. Oh? As soon as she's conscious, let me know what you find out about her. 
now. It's all right, Marion. All right. Where, where am I? You're in Blair Hospital. I'm, uh, I'm Dr. Kildare. Hospital? Parker, you can have this inhalator taken out and bring some hot coffee. I think that'll be better now than the caffeine shot. Uh, all right, Dr. Kildare. I'll, I'll be right back. Mm. I wish I could die. Oh, is that what you were trying to do? No, but I didn't care whether I did. Seventeen years old and didn't care whether you lived or not? I suppose you're like everybody else. You think it's just great to be young. And everything's perfect, simple, and easy. No, I think it's a fairly confusing world at any age, Marion. But it's a lot worse when you're just finding it out. No, I found it out all right. How, how did I get here? The police brought you. The police? Mm -hmm. Sergeant Blaine, a friend of mine. He passed out in an all-night lunchroom. Oh. What are they going to do to me? Nothing. There are no charges against you. After you're released in the morning, you can go right out and do the same thing again, if you like. Yes, I probably will. What of it? Oh, one night you won't get to a doctor soon enough, or a car will run you down, or something. I know. I don't care. Marion, uh, how long has this been going on? Drinking? Mm. The last few months. Tonight was the worst yet. Like to tell me the reason? You wouldn't understand. You just think it was silly. Even my father and mother don't understand. Unfortunately, parents are the last to understand sometimes. It's a mixed up world for them, too, you know. Not for mine. They got it all figured out. And they despise me. They hate me. Oh, well, come in, Parker. Here's the coffee, Dr. Kildare. The night supervisor had some already made. Good. Put it here on the table by the bed. All right, Doctor. You probably don't want this, Marion, but let's try to get a cup or two down anyway. Dr. Kildare, I... You can have a little cream if you like, but it's better if you drink it black. Oh, Dr. Kildare. <laughs> Well, Dr. Gillespie, you wanted a full report as soon as she was conscious enough to, uh... Oh. Uh, Kildare, uh, this is Mr. and Mrs. Lewis, Marion's parents. Oh, how do you do? How do you do? How do, you do? I've just been talking to your daughter. How is she? How is she? I've already found out she's dead drunk. Clyde, please. She's going to be all right, Mrs. Lewis. Oh, thank heaven. Oh, Elizabeth, you take up for that kid no matter what she did. She's no good, and that's all there is to it. I'm afraid I don't agree with you, Mr. Lewis. I suppose you think you know more about her than I do. Strangely enough, I think I do. Ah, uh, uh, Jimmy. Excuse me, Dr. Gillespie. Uh, Mr. Lewis, I'd like to talk to you in the outer office for just a minute. Huh? All right. Oh, Dr. Gillespie, I knew something like this was going to happen to my daughter. Uh, Mr. Lewis, I've just been talking to your daughter, as you know, and... Well, if I may take the liberty of advising you, I'd like to say that she has a good many problems. Problems? <laughs> a girl her age has problems? <laughs> Not to you, maybe, but enough to put her in a hospital. The reason I wanted to talk to you out here, away from your wife, is that in time, they they might become big enough to kill her if you're not worked out. And what are all these problems? Oh, just little ones. Silly ones, in fact. 
Like, uh, like, well, you wanting her to wear clothes too young for her and that she's not allowed to have dates when other girls of her age are. Things like that. No, that's it. That's what started it all. Hmm? One night I caught her sneaking out and meeting some fellow at the corner drugstore. Lock her up in her room for a month. Now, don't you realize you just can't lock a person up and expect them to, to understand? You've got to talk things over with her. Talk it over with her? act like she's already a grown-up woman. Well, at 17, if she's not well along to being grown-up, she never will be. You see, Mr. Lewis, a girl her age is All right, to... all right. Everybody to their own opinion. She'll be ready to leave here in about 10 minutes? Um, she won't be ready to leave here tonight. Why not? Because, Mr. Lewis, I'm not ready to release her. Well, now, we'll just have to see about that young fellow. I think you've got a few things to learn. Maybe so, but in my opinion, there are a whole lot of things you ought to learn, Mr. Lewis, and for the sake of that girl, you'd better learn them fast. All right, Jimmy, I agree with you. You're absolutely right, but confound it, relax. Calm down. Okay, Dr. Gillespie. I'm sorry I lost my temper, but... Oh, oh well. I know. That righteous smugness of his would make anybody. Yeah. Mad. He can't see any side of it but his own. Just it. There's nothing really bad about that girl. All she needs is someone who will treat her as a person, who will, who will listen to her ideas and try to understand her. Well, I guess her father's given her very little of that. You know, Jimmy, it's the same old business. Nine times out of ten... Alcoholism is a secondary problem. There's always something behind it. Usually the reason isn't as clear-cut as this one. Come in. Well, if it isn't Dr. Carew. Gentlemen, uh, just step right in, Mrs. Lewis. Mr. Lewis. Thank Thank you. By the great horn spoon. Carew, do you sleep in that gardenia? Certainly not, Dr. Gillespie. Merely because it's three o'clock in the morning is no reason not to make oneself presentable when one is called on to appear in public, that is. Presentable. Dr. Kildare, these people tell me you've precipitated a little crisis. Well, I... Carew, inasmuch as Kildare and I have similar opinions in this matter, you may address us collectively. Oh, dear. Why, Dr. Gillespie, I thought you were too old for this sort of thing. Very ridiculous. Well, Carew, fire at will. Now, Dr. Gillespie... Look, I don't know what this is all about, but I'm only concerned with one thing. Dr. Carew... Suppose you give this young man his orders. Now, Mr. Lewis, just leave this to me. Carew, the answer is no. Dr. Gillespie, please. Now, Dr. Kildare, I'm afraid I'll have to ask you to release the young lady to the custody of her parents at once. Uh, Sorry, but I'm holding her for observation. Observation? She's able to talk. She's able to go home where she belongs. I'm not so sure that is where she belongs. Now, Dr. Gildare, we can't let our personal opinions enter into our cases, you know. Then call it a professional opinion. Dr. Carew, she's under my care, and according to law, she stays there until I release her. Oh, I'm sure you wouldn't take such an unfortunate attitude as... I'll get it. Gildare speaking. Sergeant Blaine, Jimmy. Oh, yes, yes. Sorry to have to tell you this, but there's just been a complaint filed against the Lewis girl who's shoplifting. What? Are you sure it's her? Can't be any doubt since the description file fits both her and the clothes she was wearing. Well, look, Blaine, can you, can, you, can you stall until the morning and I'll call the shop and try to fix it up or something? I'll do what I can, Doc. Uh, call me in the morning. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Goodbye. 
Well, there's no use having any further discussion about this tonight. I've, I've got a patient who's in trouble, and if I can, I'm going to help her out of it. Regardless of what anyone says, I'm not going to release her until I'm ready. That's final. We return to the story of Dr. Kildare in just a moment. The story of Dr. Kildare, starring Lou Ayers as Dr. Kildare and Lionel Barrymore as Dr. Gillespie. Well, that's that. 4 a.m., Dr. Gillespie. With all the irate parents and our fat-headed superintendent cleared out now, maybe we can finally get some sleep. Yeah, could be, Jimmy. Of course, we still haven't done much toward clearing up the problem, though. I know. I can hold them off for the moment by refusing a release for Marion, but that's only temporary. Something has to be done tomorrow. What about this shoplifting business? It's pretty serious, mm. isn't it? Serious enough. Apparently, Marion tried on some clothes in a dress shop, then left wearing them while the sales girl was busy at something else. Ah, the crazy young fool. Now, Blaine's going to stall the warrant as long as he can. I'll call the shop in the morning, see if I can get them to drop the charges if I guarantee the cost of the clothes. Getting in pretty deep, aren't you, Jimmy? Oh, what can you do? Well, I noticed you were right there with me. Well, that was merely a personal attitude toward Carew. If he'd said black was black, I'd have said it was green. All right, so it was entirely personal. Mm. And it still doesn't answer the question, how are we going to help her? The girl needs understanding. Problems as simple as that. Only the answer's not quite as simple. No, because the only logical answer is to bring her and her parents together. Mm. Right now, they're a thousand miles apart. They need some common basis to work from. By the tarnation, aside from the fact that they're distantly related by birth, I don't see one. Neither do I. Now, I'm going to talk to both sides again in the morning. Do that, Jimmy, do that. Now, we'd better both get some sleep, or tomorrow you'll look as wilted as Carew's gardenia. Dr. Kildare. I only meant to look at the clothes and try them on. And they were so beautiful and so... I, well, so they made you look grown up, huh? And they were clothes you'd picked out yourself? Yes. And I was so miserable I didn't care what happened. So I, I took them. Took them? You know, we never get anywhere by kidding ourselves, Marion. Is that really what you mean? No. I, I stole them. Dr. Kildare, will they send me to jail? No, they got a check this morning. They've withdrawn the charges. You... You sent them... But why? <sighs> I can't pay you back. I don't have a job. My parents think I'm too young to work. Well, forget that for the moment. We'll worry about it later. Marion, how did all this start? Well, I don't know. My folks wouldn't let me have friends at home. Not any at all. Mm -hmm. Finally, I got so I'd slip off to the corner drugstore and talk to people boys. Mm. 
wasn't anything. He just laughed and talked. Oh, I see. And Dad found out about it and locked me in my room at nights for a month. So finally it all led up to, uh, to last night, huh? Yes. And a dead end, too, because that isn't the solution, you know. Dr. Kildare, there isn't any solution. I won't go back home again and have them tell me how low I am, how ungrateful, and how I failed them. And there's nothing else. Nothing. Well, now, Mr. Lewis, maybe Kildare isn't quite as wrong as you think he is. Of course he's wrong. Now, wait a minute. You and I come from what they call the older generation. And the world's changed a lot since we came into it. Well, maybe the world has, but right and wrong never change. Oh, that could be. I sometimes wonder, though, if we don't use these words right and wrong pretty loosely. Anything that we're familiar with, that is, that we learned before we were 21 years old, we call right. And anything new that's come along since, we call it wrong. There's no basis for it either way. Well, I can't agree with you, Dr. Gillespie. Huh. Everybody knows the things this modern generation does, and I won't have Marion acting the same way. Well, it seems to me that people have been selling the younger generation short for about 20 centuries or more. But each time they managed to come through it all right. No, sir, things were different when we were young. Ah, different, yes, but not necessarily any better. And you know, we didn't do such a hard job of building a new world, Mr. Lewis. Well, nevertheless, I feel that... Oh, come on in, Jimmy. Mr. Lewis. Good morning, Dr. Kildare. I guess I owe you an apology. Sorry I lost my temper last night. Well, I did a little of that myself, as I remember. But I think we can be more reasonable about it this morning. Oh, I hope so. Now, my wife's waiting downstairs, so if you'll fix up that release, we'll just take Marion right along with us. Well, she's a very hurt girl, Mr. Lewis, or a very sick one, if you want to put it that way. Well, hangover can get... Oh, no, no, no. It's a lot deeper than that. I do hope you'll be gentle with her, trying to talk to her and reason with her. Look, Kildare, when I was a kid and did anything wrong, my father didn't talk to me. He used the back of a hairbrush. That's reason enough for me. It's no use, Jimmy. I tried every argument I could think of. Well, Dr. Kildare, are you going to sign that release or not? No, I'm not, Mr. Lewis. In my opinion, Marion still needs medical care. In that case, I'd better see a lawyer. Whatever you like. Oh, one other thing, Kildare. I understand you paid off that dress shop for the clothes Marion stole. Of course, I want to make yeah, good save for it for the funeral. I see. Well, I'll find out from the police and mail you a check. I pay my debts. I can tell you one you'll never be able to pay. I think that's a matter of opinion. Good day, gentlemen. Well, there goes nothing. He's hard-headed, all right. And the worst of it is, he loves his daughter. He's just as hurt as she is. Sure he is. But he's too confounded stubborn to tolerate any idea but his own. And there's nothing we can do. Mm -hmm. If he sees a lawyer, he'll have her back in his custody within 24 hours. I can't support any claim that she needs further medical care. Well, we did all we could. Now, come in, Parker. Dr. Kildare, have you forgotten you're supposed to make the rounds in the crippled children's ward at 11 o'clock? No, Parker, I was just about to... to... Say, you know something? What? A long shot. Parker. Huh? Go stop Mr. Lewis and bring him back here. His wife, too. Hurry. Thank you.
Haven't we seen about enough of this now, Dr. Kildare? Oh, there's only one more section, Mr. Lewis. It's right ahead of us. Well, it can't be much different from the others. Now, here we are. Uh, we won't go inside. We can look through these windows along the corridor. These children are all under five years old. Oh, and all of them are handicapped in some way. Mm-hmm, in various ways. And furthermore, most of them are charity patients, wards of either the hospital or some charitable organization. Dr. Kildare, I assume you had some point in mind when you insisted we come here with you. I wonder if you'd explain just what it was. Oh, I'm not sure whether I can explain it, Mr. Lewis. I guess I wanted to show you some of the differences in handicaps and to point out that physical handicaps aren't the only kinds. Um, look, Mr. Lewis, that curly-headed little boy there by the window, the one with braces on both legs. Yes, I see. Suppose he was yours, and you didn't happen to like the way he was forced to walk. Now, what would you do? Try to help him to learn to walk his way or beat him with a hairbrush because he couldn't walk your way? Well, I... Can you imagine a child like that being no good? Well... Oh, Clyde, we have been wrong sometimes, you know. We failed her as much as she could ever fail us. I wonder if maybe you aren't right. So many things we could have done and didn't. So many things we thought were important. Perhaps they're not. Elizabeth, I... Well, I think maybe we'd better talk this over. Now you'll find a conference room at the end of the corridor. You won't be disturbed. Well, thanks, Dr. Kildare. Come on, dear. Well, I'll be darned. <laughs> You're the luckiest man I ever saw. Hmm? Oh, I didn't hear you come up. Long shot paid off, huh? Well, that's the way it seems. <laughs> and I'm glad it did, but... But what? Jimmy, would you mind explaining the logic of your plan? Well, I don't know. I just had a hunch, I guess, a feeling. But confounded, Jimmy, it doesn't even make good sense. Only there's one thing about it, Dr. Gillespie. What? It worked. just a moment, we will return to the story of Dr. Kildare. Once again, the story of Dr. Kildare, starring Lou Ayers as Dr. Kildare and Lionel Barrymore as Dr. Gillespie. Confounded, Parker. Can't Kildare and I have five minutes' conversation without you poking your long nose in? Well... Never mind. What do you want? Well, Dr. Carew's outside there. Shall I show him in? Show him in. Show him out. I don't care where you show him. Oh. I think I know what he wants. I doubt if he's heard. Oh, you. let's pour it on him, Jimmy. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Well, Jimmy, look, if it isn't Dr. Carew. Yes, I believe it is at that. Gentlemen, please. Step into our parlor, Carew. Speak up. What's on your mind? <clears throat> gentlemen, 
I have refrained from exercising my authority, uh, but there can be no more quibbling now, no more dilly-dallying. Isn't that word dilly-dallying, Dr. Gillespie? Well, Jimmy, I think you're right. Uh, Gentlemen, that girl, I want her released at once. I, I guess he means you, Jimmy. I'm not holding any girl. Dr. Gillespie, you know very well who I mean. It's that, that Marion Lewis girl. Lewis? Uh, Marion Lewis? Well, there is something familiar about that name. Oh, I remember, Dr. Gillespie. That's the girl who left with her parents right after lunch. Dr. Kildare, I won't listen to any other... She was. You know, I don't think Dr. Carew really knows what's going on around here. Oh, dear. But I thought... I, I mean, you said that... But last night you... Oh, dear. Oh, dear, 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 dear. Parker! Open the door for Dr. Carew. He's trying to walk through the back of the closet. You have just heard the story of Dr. Kildare, starring Lou Ayers and Lionel Barrymore. This program was written by Les Crutchfield and directed by William P. Russo. Original music was composed and conducted by Walter Schumann. Supporting cast included Virginia Gregg, Ted Osborne, Loreen Tuttle, Tal Avery, Barbara Ruick, and Jack Crucian. Dick Joy speaking. tradition of conflict between doctors and hospital administrators that ran well into the TV era with, for example, House. That was the story of Dr. Kildare with the story of Marion Lewis, teenage alcoholic, from September 14, 1950, in which James Kildare showed some temper and later apologized for it. As for Lou Ayers, who played Dr. Kildare, his breakthrough role came back in 1930 when he starred in the silent film All Quiet on the Western Front. The war films also made Lou Ayers a conscientious objector during World War II. He and 15 other medics arrived under fire during the invasion of Leyte to set up evacuation hospitals, and he donated all of the money that he earned as a serviceman to the American Red Cross. Now we offer you Sam Spade with a case right after this here on Skywave Audio Theater. If, as advertised, the adventures of Sam Spade do set your hair on end, Spade can offer you just the right thing to put it back. That would be Wild Root Cream Oil, his sponsor. Regardless of how the plots turned out, you can be sure that as Spade, Howard Duff had a great time, and so did Loreen Tuttle as his steadfast, if slightly goofy, secretary, Effie. Behind the scenes, the producers had uh, some fun, too. Case in point, in the credits, you're going to hear mention of Sadie Thompson as one of the actors. Well, she actually was June Havoc, the wife of producer William Spear. One of Havoc's better-known roles was as Sadie Thompson in the 1944 Broadway production of the Somerset Mom play Rain. She married William Spear in 1948, which is when our broadcast came out. 
from September 19, 1948, as Spade will tell you. This is the Hot 100 Grand Caper. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective. Brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic, the non-alcoholic hair tonic that contains lanolin. Wild Root Cream Oil, again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Uh, this is Sam, Blackleg Spade, the third most dangerous gambler on the Barbary Coast. Oh, Sam, not horses again. Horses, women, and the gaming tables, Effie, the diversions of the elite. Well, divert yourself with this, Sam. The phone company has sent the pink notice. Aha, uh-huh. pay it no mind, sweetheart. We are healed. We have hit the cashier's cage, annexed the pot, broken the bank, and we're standing on velvet. Sam, are you sober? Uh, definitely velvet. Hmm, warm, too. Sam, from where are you calling from? You're wrong, Effie. It's a drugstore. Stay where you are. I'll be right down to deal out my report on the hot hundred grand caper. Dashiell Hammett, America's leading detective fiction writer and creator of Sam Spade, the hard-boiled private eye, and William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama, join their talents to make your hair stand on end with the adventures of Sam Spade. Presented by the makers of Wild Root Cream Oil for the hair. It's smart to buy things the whole family can use, isn't it? That's why I say it's smart to buy Wild Root Cream Oil hair tonic. To mom, to dad... To the children, Wild Root Cream Oil is really a friend indeed. Non-alcoholic Wild Root Cream Oil with lanolin grooms the hair neatly and naturally, relieves dryness, removes loose, ugly dandruff. I hope you have a big family-sized bottle of Wild Root Cream Oil in your home. Get Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. And now, with Howard Duff starring as Spade, Wild Root brings to the air the greatest private detective of them all in the adventures of Sam Spade. Date, uh, September 19, 1948, to uh, robbery detail, San Francisco Police, Attention Sergeant Walsh. Uh, from Samuel Spade, license number 137596, uh, dear Joe. Here's the rundown on that hot hundred grand. It started pleasantly enough when my secretary, Miss Effie Perrine, cute little mouse, eased into my private office, closed the door behind her, and leaned back against it with that air of pained resignation, which generally means there's a customer outside that she doesn't approve of, but that I'll see her anyway. It's up to you, Sam. She's very well dressed, and I imagine she can afford you. How do you uh, deduce that? Well, she dropped her purse. I didn't get time to count it all, but there was a $100 bill on top. Well, sure in, Effie. Sam. Go ahead, say it. Oh, I don't know, Sam. Sometimes, well, there's just money. No. No, that's one of the reasons I hire you. What's the matter with it? Nothing. That's just it, Sam. She's very good looking, mm-hmm. cultivated, and very kind and considerate. And she seems sincerely troubled. You mean her act is a little too good? I felt that too, Sam. Thanks, Angel. I'll keep that in mind. Tell her to come in. All right, Sam. Mr. Spade will see you, Mrs. Kilcoy. Thank you. Thank you for seeing me, Mr. Spade. My pleasure. Uh, Won't you sit down? Oh, thank you. I'm Lorraine Kilcoy, Mr. Spade. It's about my husband, Leonard Kilcoy. Husband? 
Oh. We've only been married a short time. It was a quiet ceremony at the San Cedro Mission. Mm. Leonard didn't want to subject me to any publicity. The difference in our ages, you know? You mean you want me to keep it a secret? Oh, no. No, except for the newspapers, of course. Naturally, all of Leonard's friends know. Oh, he doesn't have many from what I've heard. I've thought it strange, too, that such a prominent man should have such a small circle of acquaintances. I met him only a short time before I married him. He's been very kind and absolutely devoted to me, and I suppose I should feel ashamed of myself for, for coming to you. But there are so many things about him that are mysterious that I... Sometimes I... I, I can't seem to find my handkerchief. Here. Kleenex. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. I uh, take it you're not a San Francisco girl. No. No, I met him at a dude ranch. Well, uh, maybe I can clear up some of your mysteries for free. The reason your husband doesn't have many friends is because they keep dropping dead. I don't understand you. Uh, forget it. He's a big public servant. He's built a lot of sidewalks. The streets of this city are paved with his good intentions. His name is on a thousand manhole covers. If the names of his former business associates land on headstones, it's nothing to me. I got my own racket. Well, what? I think my husband is paying blackmail to someone. Uh-huh. And upon what do you base your suspicions, Mrs. K? It started about a month ago. He began withdrawing large sums from our joint account. First it was 10000 then then 20000 and last week, 50000 mm -hmm. and, and this morning, he closed out the balance of the account. $100,000. Well, he's got it to spend, Mrs. Kilcourt. Well, I... I won't pretend the money doesn't interest me, but what's behind it, Mr. Spade? Each time he withdraws these cash sums, he leaves the house without a word to me. And sometimes doesn't return until dawn. My husband is not fond of nightlife, Mr. Spade. Only a desperate situation could induce him to leave the house after dark. <clears throat> yeah, so I've heard. They say that's how he kept his health as long as he has. All right, uh, you want me to trail him, find out what he does with the money. Just one question. Why'd you pick me for the job? I... I, why, your reputation... That's is... local. You say you're new in San Francisco. Well, I, I do read the local papers. Your picture was in only two weeks ago. Yeah, well, that caper didn't help my reputation. I like your looks. A nice, honest face. A man I could trust. Well, don't buy that. And I'm sentimental, too. Your picture reminded me of someone who was very dear to me. My brother. Of course, you're nothing like him, really, but... But you do look alike. I suppose that sounds like a silly woman's reason for... Yeah. What's your address? Well, I have a little place of my own out on Divisadero. The Balboa Apartments near Normandy Terrace. Mm -hmm. You'd better keep in touch with me there. I don't want Leonard to know. The Kilcourse Mansion is at 1316 Clarendon. 1316. Mm -hmm. He returns from his office around 6 in the evening. Do you have a car? No. I need one? Well, I don't know where he may go. Now, here are the keys to my car. It's parked in front of the main entrance, a gray Plymouth. He won't recognize the car. My, my, it's my brother's. Now, about your fee. A hundred bucks now. If I need more, I'll leave you now. I had an uneasy feeling I would need more. The last detective that tried to follow Leonard Kilcourse had hospital insurance. I don't. But I'm a gambler at heart, so I parked Lorraine's Plymouth across the street from the Kilcourse mansion and waited. At 9 and a p.m., Mr. Kilcourse, much, much too old for her, came out the front door and flagged down a taxi. I made an illegal U-turn and followed. Uh, 
trail ended across the Golden Gate Bridge in Marin County. It was a country club-type building on top of a hill overlooking the bay. It did business under the name of Ernie Nogales' Racket Club. The racket had nothing to do with tennis. It came from two sources. The moans and groans of the customers losing money at the roulette wheels and crap tables, and the glad hand the management threw at my quarry as I followed him in. Mr. Kilcore, surprised to see you. Since when you go out after dark? Well, I thought a little nightlife might agree with me, Nogales. Oh, 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 that sounds like you, Mr. Kilcore. I didn't know you better. I think you was afraid to go out night. <laughs> well, now, I was thinking of buying this place to retire to. Ah. But I figured it'd be cheaper to win it at your roulette table. <laughs> What's your limit here? 10,000, but for you, wide open, the sky. A hot hundred grand for a starter? <laughs> well, any time they catch you with hot money, Mr. Kilko. <laughs> Come over to the cashier. Oh. I sell you the chips myself. <laughs> I didn't have to bother making myself inconspicuous. Everybody in the joint stopped playing to watch Kilcourse while he shoved his hundred grand roll through the cashier's window and scooped up four stacks of thousand-buck chips. Make your bets, please. All right, you. Spin that wheel. Huh? How much you got there? Twenty-five grand. Any objections? Is that okay, Mr. Nogales? Uh, spin it, Joe. I'm covering through the table personally. Okay, sir. Around and round the little ball goes. Fifteen page, fifteen and the red. Maybe next time, Mr. Kilgo. Why don't you double up, play the red and the black? Safer. I'll stay with the numbers. Fifty thousand on fifteen. There, spin it. It's okay, Joe. I'm still covering. Well, it's your money, Mr. Nogales. Number four page, number four and the red again. Well. 25 grand more on 15. Uh, look, Mr. Kilcorns, go on, enjoy yourself, take it off your income tax, but please spend those, spread them out a little there, those chips, huh? Looks bad for the house. What kind of a joint is this? Can't you cover the bets? Okay, Joe, he asked for it. Okay, sir. I didn't wait to see where the little ball went on the last spin of the wheel. I would have made a side bet with any taker that Kilcourse wanted to lose that hundred grand. I would also have made book he knew I was following him. As I left the table and walked out of the club, I braced myself for what usually comes next. There would either be a dead body in the car or somebody would crease my noggin with a sap. But nothing happened. I switched on the headlights and stood in the glare of them for fully a minute, but nobody even shot at me. I flushed the shrubbery. No gunman. Checked the ignition wires. No booby traps. Driving back to town, I racked my brain for some way to bring them out into the open. I felt like a man with his life savings all on one number waiting for the wheel to stop spinning, which wasn't far from the truth. Not much of a cliffhanger, but the best we could do this week. The makers of Wild Root Cream Oil are presenting the weekly Sunday adventure of Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, Sam Spade. Now, here's important news on good grooming. If you want the well-groomed look that helps you get ahead, socially and on the job, listen. Recently, thousands of people from coast to coast who bought Wild Root Cream Oil for the first time were asked, how does Wild Root Cream Oil compare with the hair tonic you previously used? 
The results were amazing. Better than four out of five who replied said they preferred Wild Root Cream Oil. Remember, non-alcoholic Wild Root Cream Oil contains lanolin. It grooms the hair naturally, relieves dryness, and removes loose, ugly dandruff. So if you want your hair to be more attractive than ever before, get the generous new 25-cent size of Wild Root Cream Oil, America's leading hair tonic, on sale at all drug and toilet goods counters. It's also available in larger economy bottles and the handy new tube. Get Wild Root Cream Oil, again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. By the way, smart girls use Wild Root Cream Oil, too, and mothers say it's grand for training children's hair. And now, back to the hot hundred grand caper. Tonight's adventure with Sam Spade. Yeah. Uh, this uh, Mrs. Kilcross's apartment? Yeah. She here? Yeah. Well, uh, can I come in? Yeah. Tommy? Yeah. Who is that, Mr. Spade? Yeah. Oh, this is, this is the detective I was telling you about, Tommy. Remember? Yeah. The one who looked so much like you? Yeah. No. Oh, excuse me. This is my brother, Tommy Lane. Yeah. I mean, uh... Tommy, won't you run down to the corner and buy me some cigarettes for about 20 minutes? I have something to talk over with Mr. Spade. Yeah. Nice boy, your brother. Small vocabulary, but big feet. Well, he, he's shy. Now, what did you find out about Mr. K uh, my husband, Mr. Spade? He uh, dropped 100 grand in a gambling joint, Ernie Nogales' racket club. You know it? No, but I know Ernie Nogales. I knew him in Reno before I met Leonard. He lost his license there for running a crooked wheel. The way Kilcourse was playing tonight, that wheel didn't have to be crooked. He was trying to lose that hundred grand. But why? Why would he do a thing like that? One of two reasons. Either he's paying off to Nogales or he's paying off to somebody else and Nogales is the go-between. Well, I don't believe it. Ernie is a crooked gambler, but he doesn't touch blackmail. And your husband isn't stupid enough to drop a hundred grand in three turns of a wheel. Anyway, I'm not tangled with him and or the Ernie Nogales mob for a hundred bucks of your money or anybody else's. Here, take it. Well, but... And here are your car keys. No, no, wait, please. You, you can't desert me now. Why not? Well, I haven't told you everything. I'd hoped I wouldn't have to. About your brother? How did you know? The only place you get a green suntan is in a pokey. Besides, he acts kind of stir-crazy. Spent a little time in solitary, didn't he? He won't talk about it. But that's it, Sam. That's why Leonard is paying that blackmail money to Nogales. Uh, you just said Nogales wouldn't touch blackmail. Any other corrections you'd like to make in your copy before we proceed? Yes. Well, I might as well tell you everything. Why not? I knew when I came to you this morning that my husband was paying this money to Nogales. I knew because I asked him to. You and Ernie Nogales are working together? I'm not that rotten. I didn't say you were, but you're a rotten liar. There's that much in your favor. But I'm telling the truth now, Sam. You must believe me. Everything that has happened is my fault. I persuaded Nogales to give my brother a job in his place in Reno. Mm -hmm. They quarreled, and when he got closed down, he, he blamed Tommy. He swore he'd kill him when he got out of prison. That's why I begged my husband to pay him to save Tommy's life. Who did rat on Nogales about that crooked wheel in Reno? I did. That's why I feel responsible. Leonard is so fine, so, so generous. But I can't let him go on paying for my mistake. Yeah, like you said, he's going to run out of money. Look at me, Sam. 
Do I look like the kind of a woman to whom money means everything in the world? No, but you're looking at me, not at Kelcourse. You're laughing at me. Oh, I know what you think. Perhaps I did make a mistake in marrying Leonard, but he was so kind, so considerate, like my father. Everybody reminds you of your relatives. You don't believe my story. Well, since you asked. Well, all right, then. Here's the truth. I'm really Jack the Ripper's granddaughter. My parents were terribly wealthy. I harpooned my mother in her Beverly Hills swimming pool, set fire to my father with a $50,000 negotiable bond, and eloped with John Wilkes Booth. That brings us up to 1865. Shall I go on? Don't stop. It's great. Oh, get out of here. Get out of here and leave me alone. After you've told me all your secrets, I'm not that rotten. You won't help me. You never intended to. Why go on? Torturing. Oh, now, stop that. Please, please. I, I believe you. I believe all your stories. Now, uh, what is my next smart move? Sam, the only way to stop Ernie Nogales is to prove that he's running a crooked wheel. And then he'd pay back all that blackmail money, and, and he wouldn't dare lay a hand on Tommy. Well, it's going to be hard to prove and expensive. Oh, but... I'll have to lose a little on that wheel before I can figure the way it's rigged. How much can you invest? Well, I, I have about a thousand dollars of my own. With you? Yes. Here, you take it. Mmm, smells nice. Sam. Yeah? Sam, after all this is over, and after I've put things to right with Leonard, I should have told him before this, but I owed him so much, I... Oh, Sam, I'm so glad it's you. Yeah, me too, Angel. Go now, darling, before I beg you not to. What time does that joint close? Well, well, it runs all night, I think. Good. Let's stay up late and raid the icebox. Around 2 in the a.m., when I low-geared the Plymouth up the long, steep driveway to Ernie Nogales' racket club, backed into the parking space nearest the road with a car headed downhill for a quick getaway just in case, and I went in. The joint was still going full blast. I bought 500 bucks worth of chips, swaggered over to the table where Kilcourse had dropped his hundred grand and nonchalantly flipped the blue chip onto the red. Appalachia bitch, ladies and gentlemen. Make your game. Okay, that's all. Around and round the little ball goes. I didn't look to see where the little ball went. Most of the money was on red, so it was bound to turn up black. A red, please. What? Number 15. Place your bets, please. Make your game, ladies and gentlemen. Around and round it goes. The chips were spread around more the next turn, so I stacked 100 at the bottom of the 1 to 34 column. With a crooked wheel, my 100 made it the best bet to lose. And 19, and the red wins again. Hey! I plunked 500 down on number 5 and raked in 17,500. I left my original bet on the table. When the little ball fell into the pocket, I was 35,000 bucks to the good from my point of view, but not from my clients. I doubled my bet and looked apprehensively around. There were no surly characters edging up behind me. In fact, the only surly character in sight was Ernie Nogales, and he looked happy. That didn't make much sense. When my bankroll got to 105,000, I played a hunch. I threw five grand of it back on the table and lost it. That made a kind of sense. I cashed in the rest of my chips and squeezed the hundred grand U.S. currency into my inside pocket. If anybody aimed for my heart, it was thick enough to stop the slug, which was some comfort. But what I saw when I walked out to the parking lot was no comfort at all. I'd gotten just a glimpse of it through some trees. 
The sedan backed into a driveway halfway down the hill. It was blacked out except for five glowing cigar ends that showed through the windows. I could think of only one reason for five cigar smokers to be parked in that particular spot at that particular moment. The Plymouth is where I had parked it, pointing straight down the hill. I slammed the door but didn't get in. Then I listened. The car down the hill was getting ready, too. I cracked the door of the Plymouth wide enough to get my arm inside and pressed the starter with the heel of my hand. I switched on the lights, pushed the clutch with my left hand, used my right to shift it into low, and I pulled the hand throttle out all the way and let it go. idea busting into my office. We're going to have a talk, Nogales. Please, don't wave that heater at me. It makes me nervous. I don't like guns. I don't either. That's why I'm here. Put your hands on top of the desk and keep them there. All right. Give me back that roll. I give you clean money for it. It was a gamble, so I lost. Can you blame me? Where'd you get this money? I buy it. Fifty cents on the dollar. I don't ask where it came from, but I read the papers. I figured it was that ship row, that shipyard payroll job a few days back. Like it just fell in my lap. I figured it'd make 50 grand instead of kill course five. I guess that was dirty trick you just out of stir, Tommy, huh? I got news for you, Nogales. I didn't know this money was hot, and I am not Tommy Lane. No? Then what? Private Dick. Tommy's sister hired me to take the fall for him. Look, I uh, got most of the caper. Kilcourse wanted to pay Tommy a hundred grand. You rigged the wheel so Kilcourse would lose it one night and Tommy would win it back the next night. Now, uh, what was Kilcourse paying him off for? No caper, legitimate. He was sent up for bribing a public official. You mean he was the payoff man for Kilcourse's contracting firm? Sure, legitimate business. And the grand jury went out after Kilcourse. Tommy took the rap, that's all, for a price. Yeah, a hundred grand. Thanks, Nogales. That's all I needed. Oh, Sam. I was afraid I might be too late. You are, sweetheart. Oh, I have so many things to explain. Where, 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 where can you talk? Right in here. But who's this man? Well, that's your old sweetie from Reno, Ernie Nogales, remember? What's the matter with you two? You oh. crazy? Oh, Sam, I should have told you the truth from the beginning. Check. Well, Nogales, yarn, I can understand, but why did you tell me you were Kilcross's wife? I was desperate. I had to say something. It was the only explanation I could think of for my interest in this case without uh, telling the truth. But you were making a pigeon out of me. I don't know about such things, Sam. All I know is I'm here in time to warn you. You mustn't walk out of here with that money. Listen, they may you... kill you to get it back. They already did. They're combing the wreckage of that car right now, looking for my body. <gasps> then Tommy was right. They did mean to kill him. How did he get the rumble? While he was in prison, from another man that killed Course Framed. He was in for life, so it was safe for him to talk. Hey, you two. Oh. Yeah, no, Gallus? That car that just drove up. I think that's Mr. Kilcourse. Oh, I... Hey, what's your let hurry? Go, let me go. Come on, what's your hurry? Tommy's out there in that cab. I've got to warn him. Or tip off Kilcourse. Which is it? No, Sam, you've got to believe Sit me. Sit down. Stop that. You two have fun. I'm getting out of here. Go ahead. Now, uh, listen, sweet Lorraine, you may as well save your breath for those explanations. You're staying right here until the cape is all wrapped up. Here he comes. Have you got a gun, Sam? Yeah. Well, you'd better have it ready. Mm-mm. But Sam... There's no Gallus. I want to see him. Uh, he was called out of town, sir. I'm in charge. Uh, you must have killed course? That's right. I want to know why you people have been interfering with my business. It might interest you to know that this building site's on an old Spanish land grant. 
title's very shaky. I'll run an eight-lane highway straight through the middle of it and turn the rest of it into a game preserve. <laughs> That's what I do to people who double-cross me. I tried to tell Mr. Nogales that, sir. He wouldn't listen to me. He tipped Tommy off for a split of the hundred grand, but I knew sooner or later we'd have to answer to you, Mr. Kilcourse. Oh, well, what's that? Here's your hundred grand, sir. Count it. Sam. Well, 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 well. What's your name, son? Sam Spade, sir. Well, I'm glad to meet an honest lad. Well, come along. Uh, you too, young lady. We'll all walk out together. Sam, shut what up, are you... Shut what? Up. Uh, Spade, huh? Yes, sir. I'm a private detective, but I'm ambitious. Hmm. Politics? Uh, yes, sir. Well, we'll run you for assembly. In the meantime, I believe there's an opening in one of the public services. Garbage disposal. Executive end, of course. Where the devil is that man with my car? Oh, there he is. Now, you drop around to my office in the morning. Thank you, and good night, Mr. Kilcross. Uh, uh, drive on, Horace. Back to the city. Oh, Sam. How could you? Hmm? All those lies and, and just handing over the money like that. It, it wasn't yours. It wasn't Tommy's either, sweetheart. Get in. Well, Tommy, are you all right? Yeah. Drive us across the bridge, Tommy, will you? Yeah. Tommy. Yeah. Tommy, I'm afraid we'll have to do without the money. Yeah? S Sam gave it to Mr. Kilcourse. Yeah? N now, don't get excited, Tommy. I'm sure Sam had a reason. Didn't you, Sam? Yeah. I mean, that was marked money from a payroll job. Oh, then it won't do him any good. It'll send him up for a good long stretch if the eyewitness story that goes along with it is good enough. And you're just the girl to tell it, sweetheart. Am I uh, right, Tommy? Yeah. Period, end of report. Already? But, Sam... Yeah? What happened? Who were the five men in the car, the ones who shot at that Plymouth in the mistaken belief that you were in it? Their names are of little account, Effie. Suffice it to say that Kilcourse pointed his pudgy finger at them in the hopes of keeping the charge of attempted murder out of his indictment. But I was too clever. I identified them. But, Sam, you didn't see anything but their cigars glowing in the darkness. Have you never heard of Sherlock Holmes' monograph on the 49 varieties of tobacco ash, you oh, fool? Oh, but, Sam, Sherlock Holmes is only the segment of someone's imagination. He's a fictional detective. Well? You mean... Oh, Sam, you're tired. Yes, I am. It's affected your mind, winning well. all that money. Now, you just sit here and rest. Oh, all right. Think of the snowy mountaintops and uh, blue skies. Mm -hmm. I'll just go and type this up. Snowy mountaintops... Winter sports yet. And now, listen to this. If you haven't yet tried Wild Root Cream Oil, the famous hair tonic that grooms your hair neatly and naturally, relieves dryness, and removes loose dandruff, then here's a wonderful way to get acquainted. Buy Wild Root Cream Oil in the new 25-cent size bottle at your drug or toilet goods counter. Also, ask your barber for a professional application of Wild Root Cream Oil hair tonic. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Well, here it is, Sam. And not that it made any difference, but how did you guess that she wasn't Mrs. Kilcourse? Simple. Kilcourse didn't recognize her. But, Sam, that was after you denounced her. I did no such thing. From the report, Sam, in black and white, quote... Why did you tell me you were Kilcourse's wife, unquote? At that point, you assumed that she was not Mrs. Leonard Kilcourse. I did not. I merely wondered why she had told me. Well, with all the lies she told, you might have assumed anything she said was totally devoid of truth. And I did, sweetheart. I did. Oh. Oh, well, that's a relief. 
I was afraid for a while she'd taken you in. What's that got to do with the truth? Good night, Sam. Good night, sweetheart. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, are produced and directed by William Spear. Sam Spade is played by Howard Duff. Lorraine Tuttle is Effie. Sadie Thompson appeared as Lorraine Kilcourse. The Adventures of Sam Spade are written for radio by Bob Tallman and Gil Dow. Musical direction by Lud Gluskin. Score composed by Renee Garrigan. Join us again next Sunday when author Dashiell Hammett and producer William Spear join forces for another adventure with Sam Spade. Brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. This is Dick Joy reminding you to... Get Wild Root Cream Oil, Charlie. It keeps your hair in trim. You see, it's non-alcoholic, Charlie. It's made with soothing lanolin. You better get Wild Root Cream Oil, Charlie. Start using it today. You'll find that you will have a tough time, Charlie. Keeping all the gals away. Hiya, Baldy. Get Wild Root right away. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. From September 19th, 1948, that was the Hot 100 Grand Caper, one of the adventures of Sam Spade. With his blasé approach to cracking cases, Howard Duff may have set the tone the next year for Dick Powell to play a generally light-hearted Richard Diamond I do think a lot of that was Dick Powell's own personality, though. The host provided uh, the light before leading you into the darkness in the inner sanctum, and we'll find out about that later on. But first, we offer you Escape here on Skywave Audio Theater. An orangutan? A bear? An illusion brought on by altitude and cold. Over the years, various explanations have been offered to account for sightings of what became known as the abominable snowman or the yeti. When Anthony Ellis wrote for Escape, he worked with an explanation of his own, the name of the story being The Abominable Snowman. It's Escape from September 13, 1953. Tired of the everyday grind... Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape. Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. high on the frozen slopes of a great mountain, terrified and caught in a blizzard, while the thing for which you've been hunting has suddenly become the hunter. And if it finds you, then for you and your companions, there can be no escape. So listen now as Escape brings you Anthony Ellis's exciting story, 
the abominable snowman. first bit of luck was when we hired our Sherpa guide, Nasang. That was in Darjeeling. When I told Nasang what we were after, he hesitated for a moment. And then he said, The Saibs have not come to climb Shomolongma? Oh, no. We're a little late for that. It's already been done. The other two Saibs and myself are here for the reason I told you. Meto Kangmi? That's right. The Saibs always hire me to climb the mountain with them. But never this. Are you afraid of them? I have seen one. You've seen one? Yes, many of us have seen them. Uh, uh, wait a minute. Alan. Yeah? What's up? I'm interviewing a Sherpa in here. He says he's seen one of the things. Hey. Where's Frank? Uh, went out to get some tobacco. Yeah. All right, come on in. I think this is our man. All right. Nasang, this is Mr. Ferris. Sir? Hello, Nasang. Nasang was telling me about what he'd seen. Go ahead, Nasang. It has a face that is evil. And when it saw me, it uttered a strange cry and bounded away. Sometimes leaping, sometimes running with great strides. It was dusk. And after a moment, I lost sight of it in the snow. Where were you? With the French expedition. It was at 19,000 feet on Shomolungma. How far were you from it? Thirty feet, uh, perhaps thirty-five. You're sure it wasn't an ape? I am sure. There is no ape in the Himalaya to make such a track. What about bears? This, too, I have been asked. But does a bear walk always upon its hind legs? Well, that's enough for me. Alan? Yeah, he'll do. Yeah. But if you want the job, Nasang, you're hired. You are going to try to... Capture a yeti? Yes. It will be a difficult thing, but I will serve with you. Yeti, wild man, Netokangmi, abominable snowman. That's the name the natives had for the things, and Alan Ferris, Frank Davis, and I were going to try to get one. We'd all done some climbing, but climbing was secondary here. Expeditions since the beginning of the 20th century had heard of the abominable snowman, observed their tracks, and one or two white men claimed to have seen them. Great ape, bear, monkey, wild men. We didn't know, but we were going to find out. Four weeks later, we were in the Rongbuk Valley for our interview at the monastery with the Lama. The journey from our base had been uneventful. The weather was good and our spirits were high. From the Lama's window, we could see the great peak of Everest in the distance. Why, gentlemen, do you desire to capture Metokangmi? Because, sir, we believe it will be an invaluable aid in our prehistoric research, that is, if these things are in any way human. And for this reason, then, you have formed the expedition? Yes. You are all familiar with climbing? Yes, we are. You would need to be. 
the Yeti move at high places, dangerous places, so my people tell me. Also, the monsoons are arriving in a short time. I understand that. Then do we have your permission to investigate in the valley and beyond? You have my permission. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. There is one point, however. I must request that no wild animal or being in this valley be shot. Our religion does not allow it. We'll respect your wishes, sir. Now, may I ask you one more thing? Of course, my son. Do you believe in the existence of Metokangmi? I myself have never seen them, but I know that they live here, above the valley, on the goddess mother of the world. It is also true that at least five, and possibly more, inhabit the upper Rongbuk and its glaciers. Thank you. Do you have porters? Our guide, Nasang, is hiring them now. Yeah. I trust that he meets with good fortune. The old man, with great dignity, bowed slightly to us and we were dismissed. But I thought I saw the shadow of a smile on his lips as he turned away. And it wasn't long before I found out why. Nasang returned to us in our quarters and his face warned of bad news. Sir, I am unable to hire any porters. Why not? They know the purpose of the expedition. They will not go. Why? They are afraid. Of the snowmen? Yes. They live in peace with them. They wish no trouble. They are afraid. Well, all right. It'll be rough, but we can't waste time talking them into it. The monsoons will be coming in a couple of weeks. It's not the same as climbing, Everest. We'll travel light, just the four of us, set up a base and start hunting. All right with you, fellows? Yeah, sure. Nasang? I will go with you. I am not afraid. Good. Well, let's take a look at the map. Now, we'll each carry a capacity load. We should be able to make this point below the glacier in two days. That's 16,000 feet. Mm. And if our abominable snowmen are in the vicinity, we've got two weeks to find them. When do we start? Tomorrow. Good. Well, that's it. Um, Paul? Yes, Frank? Uh, one thing. What do the natives mean when they say they don't want any trouble with the things? Uh, superstition, probably. Oh, no, sir. It is not superstition. It is because the Yeti are cannibals. That is why the porters are afraid. The weather turned ugly the day we left the village. A cold Tibetan wind blew down from the west, and with our heavy packs, it took us much longer than we'd thought to arrive at the point just below the Rongbuk Glacier. We set up our camp and made ourselves as comfortable as we could. The next morning wasn't so bad. There was a heavy overcast, a promise of snow, and the peak of Everest looming over us was shrouded in clouds. The four of us sat in the tent looking at our charts and drinking hot tea. I figured it'd be easiest if we started at the East Glacier. It's only about three miles from here, and with the weather as stinking as it is, we won't run too much of a risk. What do you think, Paul? Well, that sounds all right. What do you say we split up? Uh, you and Nasung, Alan and me. We'll work up on either side of the ridge, here. And if we spot any tracks, fire two shots. Hmm? Yeah, good enough. Now, the big thing, though, no matter what... 
don't shoot at the thing if you do see it. Okay? Okay. All right. If we lose touch with each other, we'll meet back here at five. All right, let's get going. We'd left the base at six that morning, and the going was rough. Alan was pretty well shot by the time we got to the 17,000-foot mark. He was having a tough time breathing, and the wind had come up again. And with it, a fine, powdery snow that blinded and choked us. Hey, I, I, I gotta take five. All right. Here, move over here. Might cut some of the wind. Oh. Oh. oh, that's better. Well, we might as well start back for the base. We couldn't see anything in this anyhow. You know, right now, I don't care whether we do or not. Uh, this is good weather. Wait until the monsoons start. No, no, not me. Oh, I'm cold. I've never been so cold in all my life. We stayed in the half-shelter of an overhang for ten minutes, and the wind was quieter and the snow had let up. I noticed that the tracks we'd made coming into the shelter were gone now, but we didn't have any worry finding our way back. I figured that Frank and Nassang had met pretty much the same thing on their side of the ridge, and we'd meet them at the base. So Alan and I picked ourselves up and started off. Boy, I, I thought I was in pretty good shape, but up here... Boy, I'm nothing. Ah, oh, Paul, I'm tired again. We'll just take it easy going down. You haven't got frostbite, have you? No. No, not yet, but... What? The left there. Yeah. They're, they're not our tracks, are they? Not unless you took your boots off on the way up. Must have just passed by. Must have seen us. Yeah. Come on. We were looking at a set of tracks newly made in the fresh snow. And they'd passed so close to our shelter that the thing must have known we were there. They weren't the tracks of a bear or an ape, but more like a splay-footed naked foot. The tracks of the abominable snowman. We will return to escape in just a moment, but first, 30 million school children make their way back to class this year. There are just 10 million too many for existing school facilities. Contact Better Schools to West 45th Street, New York 19, for information on ending this menace to America's educational standards. And now, back to escape. began to follow the tracks, and for a while, perhaps 150 yards, it was easy. 
And then the thing made a leftward traverse down a deep slope. We could see the prince clearly, angling with a sidestep, as sure-footed as a mountain goat, except that it was walking on two legs. This way, Paul. <laughs> Take it easy, Al. It's get, getting steeper. Boy, that thing sure can climb. Hold up. Alla. I think they Hold it. And he dropped out of sight over the lip of the crevasse. We weren't roped together. I got as close as I dared to the edge. The loose snow crumbled away from my outstretched body. And I looked down into the blue-black darkness below, falling away into nothingness. He was gone, finished. All I could think of was the noise he'd made when he went over. Surprised, angry, then silence. The crevasse might have been 500 feet or 5,000. Snow started to fall again. Big flakes this time and wet. I stood up. And across the gap 20 feet away, I saw the tracks of the thing continuing on and away until they became lost in the blank whiteness of the glacier. It had jumped and landed still upright on the opposite side. I went back to the base. And an hour later, Frank and Nassang returned. I told them. And we were quiet for a long time. Then... Paul, are we going out again tomorrow? Why not? I just wanted to. We should go back. It is an omen. I tell you, he was going too fast. He didn't have a chance to see the crevasse. That's not an omen. It's bad sense. Metokong, me cannot be caught. We'll catch him. Uh, but there are only three of us. If we had a few more men... I we'll... tell you, the thing was so close that we'd, if we'd looked up at the right time, we'd have seen it. You think I'm going to give up now? Next time, we'll get it. There was no chance to get Alan out. Huh? No. You think if we went back... We'd... Listen, you think I don't want to? He's gone. I tried, but he's gone. Okay, okay. Wish that wind had let up. Maybe by morning. We'll try again tomorrow. It was cold that night, and somehow colder because Alan was gone. I heard Frank tossing around, and I knew he was thinking about... A body, broken and lonely, lost somewhere in a deep and dark place. In the morning, the three of us packed our gear, camera, food. It was a light pack. We started up again. This time to a crest above the ridge. It was tougher than it looked, and we weren't even halfway up before we had to rest. And as I looked to the west, I saw clouds boiling up. Not white, but somber, threatening. And below... The valley looked grim, ugly gray. And then the sun was gone. And we kept on going up. And then I had a strange feeling. It was nothing I could see, nothing I could hear, only a sensation of being watched, followed. Wait a minute. See something? No. I, I have felt it too, Saib. Something following us? Yes. It is... Metukongmi. How do you know? It can be nothing else. At this height, there is nothing else that lives. Maybe it's curious. No, don't turn around, Frank. Listen. When we get up to the crest, you two flop down. Stay in sight of the slope here. What are you going to do? 
Move around the hump and watch. If it thinks we're all together, it may come close enough to give us a chance to get it. You better watch your step. It looks nasty. I will. Now, come on. It took us another 15 minutes to get up to the crest, and then Frank and Nassang hunched down to rest. They were in clear view of the slope we just descended. I moved back out of sight and made my way toward the hump, which backed a long shelf on the north side of the crest. In a couple of minutes, I lost sight of them and of the slope. The wind had increased, and the clouds had spread now to become an iron-gray canopy over the mountain. It was getting colder again. I don't think it took over five minutes to reach my lookout point. And when I did, I had a perfect view of the ground we'd covered. There was nothing there. The men were out of sight. And I waited. A minute, two. There was nothing. Until... It came, carried on the wind, a cry, and then shots. I scrambled back to where I'd left them. And when I got there, when I got there, Frank was lying on his back. And I couldn't look at what was left of his face. There were terrible deep rents in his clothing, and he was dead. The song lay huddled a few feet beyond, a gun in his hand. Son. Yeah. What is it? What? Metokangmi. From behind us. Before I could draw the gun, it has killed. Then it sprang at me. It is strong, Saib, with the strength of ten men. All right. All right, can you sit up? My leg, it struck at me, my leg broken. I shot at it, but I missed. It jumped away and was gone. Okay. We'll have to figure out a way to get you down. We were four hours from camp, and with Nassang practically helpless, it could well be four days or never. I buried Frank where he was lying, then began to work down the slope. Nassang was in great pain. He half slid and crawled as best he could. That part of it wasn't too bad. Then we were at the bottom and there was a ledge to climb. It took well over two hours to do that. And we still had three miles of difficult terrain to cover. The stops became more frequent. Sir, leave me here. Go back. No. My leg is frozen. There is no feeling anymore. I shall not live much longer, sir. Don't be a fool. After a rest, you'll be able to go on. Soon the night comes. If we are both caught here... We both die. There will be snow, much snow. Leave me, sir. No, we're going back together. Please, let me sleep. Let me sleep here. I cannot go on. You've got to, Nassan. No, no more. The ridge is only about a half mile. From there, it won't be too bad. No, no, let me stay. Nassan. Let me sleep. No, no, come on, Nassan. Come on, you're not going to sleep. Nassan. You'll be all right. Behind you, Sam. I turned, and for an instant I saw it outlined against the snow, crouching, of medium height. It was covered with thick hair. The face was reddish and bare, a semi-human face, and it was not an ape. 
The thing made a tremendous leap and was gone, but I'd hit it. I knew I hit it. But the Kangmi, that was he. Did you kill it? No, I don't think so. Then it will be back. It has tasted blood. You must leave me. No, get up. Get up. Come on. Let's go. Nassan. Nassan. I am very sorry, sir. Will you ask the Lama to make a prayer for me? Sure. Sure I will, Nassan, but... Give my pay to my wife in Darjeeling. I'm sorry, sir. I die. The song. The song. And the darkness came, and with it shadows and the snow, every hillock mound became the thing, motionless, waiting. In my mind, I kept seeing it, its long arms, powerful, and the dreadful claws it must have possessed. I carried my gun in my gloved hand, but I knew that I couldn't fire it unless I was barehanded. And that meant my hand would freeze to the gun. And then suddenly, I felt myself slipping. It was a short incline, but when I reached the bottom, the gun was gone. I'd lost it. I've got to find it. I've got to find it. And I saw a glint of metal in the snow ten feet away. And at the same time, above me at the top of the bank, the thing, it stood swaying a little, looking down at me. I moved slowly, slowly inch my way toward the gun. And as I drew closer, I kept my eyes looking up. But it didn't move, only stared down at me. And I thought I saw its little eyes glittering. And I thought, if the gun's frozen now, if it's frozen, it doesn't fire. And I was nearer to it, near enough to take off my glove. But that moment in which I'd have to bend to pick it up, that's when it would leap down at me, tear my throat out, tear and... I had the gun and I pulled the trigger. And it lay there, strange and terrifying, its blood staining the snow. And it looked at me. Looked at me. Until the sound died away. It was dead, but the eyes kept on staring. It must have been the shots that loosened the snow and ice on the ridge above. I heard the sound, and I ran, ran! passed me and swept on down toward the valley, the thunder of it dying in the distance. And when I went back, there was nothing there 
It was buried somewhere under tons of snow. I made my way back to the Rongbuk village. I don't remember how. I didn't remember anything for two weeks after. But I'm alive. And I'm not going back there again. That's all I know. Or want to know about the abominable snowmen. Escape has brought you The Abominable Snowman, written and directed by Anthony Ellis, starring William Conrad as Lane. Featured in the cast were Anthony Barrett, Pye Averback, Jack Crucian, and Edgar Barrier. The special music for Escape was composed and conducted by Leith Stevens. Next week. You are a passenger aboard a submarine making its last peaceful voyage across the sea. While unknown to you, the captain has a plan, which, if it succeeds, will mean for you and the entire crew a fate from which there can be no escape. So listen next week when Escape will bring you Marion Mosner and Francis Rosenwald's exciting story, The Log. You're headed in the right direction. The station is right, the network is right too. Check all timepieces and then check your local radio schedule. Let's have no slip-ups. Everybody wants to hear the Jack Benny Show right from the beginning when it returns to CBS Radio tonight. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is the CBS Radio Network. William Conrad, a.k.a. Lang, did escape, but nobody else did so well in their encounter with the abominable snowman. That was Escape from September 13, 1953. In addition to writing for Escape, Anthony Ellis provided stories for Suspense and Crime Classics, Frontier Gentlemen, and Gunsmoke. And in that last one, Gunsmoke, his wife, Georgia Ellis, played Miss Kitty.
And for TV, Anthony Ellis wrote scripts for The Man from Uncle and eight episodes of Gunsmoke and some others too. And now we're going to enter the inner sanctum here on Skywave Audio Theater. It's night, and you've gotten a ride from a stranger who has an agenda. You don't know what that agenda is, but you're going to get into it deeper and deeper, and it doesn't look good. That's because you've blundered into the inner sanctum, where the only certain comforts are Lipton tea and Lipton soup, but they may not be available on the road you're traveling. Our story is called Terror by Night. It's the Inner Sanctum from September 18th, 1945. Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup present Inner Sanctum Mysteries. Welcome to the shadowy borderland of the squeaking door, all you hardy adventurers. Into the land of the grisly, ghastly, gruesome, horrid, shocking, and monstrous. <laughs> I mean, in a sanctum. Of course, I assume that we're all old friends here, but if by any chance there's a stranger among us, perhaps I should state the purpose for which we are here assembled. Our object is to make your spine tingle and your hair stand on end. <laughs> That's right. When we're through, you'll discover that a fiend in need is a fiend indeed. <laughs> Heavens, you stop talking so scary, or folks will tune us off their radios. Oh, Mary, I'm just trying to scare them into the chill so they'll have to drink Lipton tea. <laughs> well, that isn't necessary at all. For a great many years, people have been enjoying Lipton tea without any persuasion from you. That famous Lipton flavor has won the praise of tea experts all over the world. And you know, folks, these experts describe the Lipton flavor by saying that it's brisk. B-R-I-S-K. Now, brisk means that Lipton tea always tastes fresh and, and full-bodied. Yes, tangy and vigorous. Never flat or wishy-washy. That's why I always say you don't know how good tea can be till you know how good Lipton's is. And now, friends, let's go from tea to terror. <laughs> yes, the title of tonight's story is Terror by Night. It's an original radio play by Emil Tepperman. Tell me, have you ever been alone with fear? Alone in the night and frightened? Well, here's Anne Shepard and the role of Linda Dixon to tell us what happened to her. It was a Friday night, and I think I was already a little nervous as I drove north into the mountains. It was the first day of my vacation, and I started from the city early enough to arrive before nightfall, but my car was six years old and developed motor trouble. So now I was driving through the night with 50 miles more to go, and I was tired and nervous and irritated. And then I heard that siren in the distance. At first, I couldn't place it. And then I remember the state prison was somewhere in the vicinity. The siren. That meant... That meant a prisoner had escaped. I reached over and turned on the radio. They were broadcasting an alarm. 
I repeat, motorists are warned to be on the lookout for Lee Hartley, who escaped from the death cell at State Prison at 9.15 p.m. He is 5 foot 10, dark-haired, regular features, no distinguishing marks. Hartley is a confirmed killer. He is believed to be armed. Beware of Hartley. He would rather kill than eat. I better give you that again. He would rather kill than eat. And that man was loose. I stared ahead at the lonely road spinning toward me through the windshield. It has been established that Hartley was helped to escape from the outside by a sweetheart, Helen Hearn, a red-headed woman just as vicious as Hartley himself. It is thought that Hartley and the Hearn woman may have separated after the escape. All motorists are warned to beware of a dark-haired man and a red-haired woman, alone or together. My hand was shaking a little as I turned off the radio. I looked in the car mirror and shivered. I, too, have red hair. There was a storm coming up, and I was driving into it. And the night was black, and I felt small and lonely and frightened in the car. Then I saw them in the mirror, the, the headlights sweeping up behind me. A car. It had come out of nowhere. It was pulling alongside, cutting me off. I cowered behind the wheel and then watched the door of that other car open. A man stepped out. Oh. I breathed a sigh of relief. It was a state trooper. Driving all alone, miss? Oh, yes, officer. Uh, sorry if I scared you. We're stopping all cars. Where are you heading for, miss? Oh, I'm going up to uh, Seven Lakes Hotel. That's near Carstairs. You see, I, I started out late from the city, and I, I'm having motor trouble. Yeah, sure. Can I see your driver's license, please? My, oh, yes, my driver's license, of course. Here, I've uh, got it somewhere in my purse. <laughs> I seem to be off fingers. That escaped prisoner, Hartley. How'd you know about him? Oh, well, I, I heard the prison siren. Then it, it came over the radio about Hartley and his red-haired girlfriend. Say, you've got red hair, too. <laughs> well, you don't think I'm that woman. Find that license yet? Well, I, I'm sure it's in here. So many... Oh, here, I've got it. Here, here's my license. Thanks. Hmm. What time did you say you left the city? About five o'clock. Took you a long time to get this far. Well, I told you I had motor trouble. Oh, I'm sure you did. Yeah, okay, Miss Dixon, here's your license. You can go ahead. Thank you. Oh, darn. There it goes again. More motor trouble. Oh, no, it's the same thing the mechanic said it might have. <laughs> there it started. You want to get that fixed first chance you get? Yeah. It's late, though. All the service stations are closed. Yeah, there's one that's open all night about two miles up the road. Oh? You better stop there. Bill Slater's place. He's a good mechanic. Yeah. He'll fix you up. Tell him Joe Nesbitt sent you. Christ, thanks. I will. Uh, listen, Miss Dixon. Yeah. You be careful. Don't stop to give anyone a lift, man nor woman. Oh, don't worry. I won't. <laughs> closed in on me again, but I didn't feel quite so nervous knowing that the trooper was somewhere behind me on the road. 
and Bill Slater's service station ahead. In a few minutes, I, I saw the lights on the service station. I swung into the open space in front of the pumps, and I stopped. There was a rumbling of thunder in the west. The storm was moving up fast. There was another car, a coupe, parked at the pump. But there wasn't anybody in it. And I didn't see any attendant around either. I pressed the horn button. And no one answered. No one came out of the office. Still no response. Everything seemed so quiet and suddenly ominous. I found myself shivering. I had a curious feeling that someone was watching me. I've got to get away from here fast. Starting on the work again. It won't start. It won't start. For a long time, I sat behind the wheel, listening. Listening for the sound of footsteps stealing up behind the car. There were none. Then I could bear it no longer. I had to get out of the car. I had to see what was in that office. I opened the door of the car and stepped down on the gravel. Anybody in there? No answer. I clenched my fists and stepped inside. There on the floor, at my feet, lay the body of a man. His mechanic's jumper was stained red with blood. And his throat was cut from ear to ear. How long I stood there, I'll never know. I was petrified, unable to move, unable to take my eyes from the bloody body. What's that? Someone coming downstairs. Hartley? It must be Hartley, the killer. He must have been hiding somewhere upstairs. I've got to get away outside. But how? My car won't run. That other car, the coupe, I could jump into that. Yes. If I could reach that coupe before he comes down. Anything I... wrong? Too late. Anything I can do for you, sister? Uh, yes, it, it, it's my car. It, it won't start. I thought someone here might help me. Sorry. There doesn't seem to be anybody around. That's my coupe over there. I stopped for gas and no one came out, so I went in and looked around. Did, did, did you find anyone? There isn't a living soul in there. Oh. You... You look kind of tired. Oh, no, no. I'm I, I'm all right. My name is Taylor. Oh? John Taylor. Uh, I'm uh, Linda Dixon. Linda Dixon, huh? I'm glad to know you. Traveling far tonight? Well, I'm going to Carstairs. Uh, Seven Lakes Hotel. They, they, they're expecting me. Now, what do you know about that? 
Carstairs is the town I'm heading for, too. Isn't that a coincidence? Uh, yes, I'm sure it is. Your car won't run, huh? Tell you what, we'll put your baggage in my car and I'll give you a lift to Carstairs. You can send for your car in the morning. Oh, uh, no. I... I'll have your bag switched in a jiffy. Please, no, I, I would rather not. There we are. All switched. Now, come on. Get in here. He took my arm and helped me into the coupe. His hand was strong. His grip was hard. It hurt me. There you are. Snug as a bug in a rug. We drove away into the night, leaving behind us the dead man in the service station. It looks as if pretty Linda Dixon has gotten herself into an awful jam. And believe me, she's shaking like jelly. My goodness, that poor girl. And just think, this is supposed to be her vacation. Why, Mary, she's in the country now, isn't she? In fact, it looks to me like she's going back to the soil. Horizontally. <laughs> oh, dear. Why do you always look on the dark side of things? Seems to me you're always pessimistic. Of course, lots of folks feel that way at times, like when they've been working too hard and they're tired. But, you know, I think there's nothing better for that let-down feeling than a good hot cup of Lipton's, the tea with the brisk flavor. That brisk flavor really perks you up. You see, that word brisk, B-R-I-S-K, is just another way of saying that Lipton tea tastes full-bodied and, and vigorous. Yes, tangy and, and spirited, never flat or wishy-washy. So try Lipton's real soon, won't you, folks? Well, now, let's go back and see how pretty little Linda Dixon is making out, all alone in the car with a strange man. But after all, she shouldn't be too scared of him. He's just a felon who needs a friend. The storm broke a few minutes after we left that service station. We drove through sheets of rain... I sat stiff and tense beside the man who called himself John Taylor. He had both hands on the wheel, and he stared out through the windshield. My eyes focused on something on his right hand. There was a stain, a small stain, but it was wet and red. I couldn't take my eyes off it. What are you looking at? What? Oh, nothing. Nothing at all. Hmm. Think I'll turn on the radio. Did you know there's been a jailbreak? Mark Liz, five foot ten, very dark hair. Don't be fooled by his pleasant manner. He is a killer by instinct. Killer no by instinct. With this man. He is absolutely... I looked at the man beside me. Helen Hearn is a clever and dangerous woman. Five foot three, red hair, very pretty. I caught Taylor looking at me out of the corner of his eye. What are you looking at? At your hair. It's red. There was a streak of lightning. And looking out of the rain-swept window, I glimpsed a signpost. The lightning illuminated the sign, and my heart skipped a beat at what I saw. 
That sign we just passed. What about it? Well, it, it uh, said Trahawks in the head. We're going the, the wrong way. We should be on the Costas Road, not on the Trahawkson Road. That's funny. Must have taken the wrong turn. Well, aren't you going to turn back? Well, sure. Whatever you say. We'll turn right around and go back. Uh-oh. We're in the ditch. In the ditch? That's no good. She won't budge. Well, it looks like we're stuck here for the night. You... You look scared. Oh, no. Um, I think I'd better get out and walk. Perhaps there's a house nearby. Walk in this weather? Oh, I don't mind the weather, really. I don't... You can't walk in this storm? Well, uh, nevertheless, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try. Not on your life. What do you mean? You're staying right here till I get the car out of the ditch. You get pneumonia walking in this storm. But I'm Let's well... Let's see. Where's that flashlight? Ah, oh, here we are. Got some tools in the trunk compartment. You stay put. Stay right where you are. I heard him open the trunk in the back. I listened for further sounds. But there was nothing. I didn't hear him moving here. I didn't hear any tools. I had to find out what he was doing. Slowly, carefully, I got my door open. I stepped out into the rain and sneaked back toward the rear. I saw him there, not moving, in front of the open trunk compartment, bending over with a flashlight in his hand. The ray of light was focused on, on something curled up inside. It wasn't baggage or tool. It was a woman's body. Just then he saw me, he snapped the flashlight off, but not before I caught a glimpse of red hair. Then I must have fainted. When I came to, I found myself seated inside the car again. My face and hair were wet. My clothes were dripping. John Taylor was driving. His face as he stared ahead through the night was dark and bleak. The storm was over. Night was quiet. Oh, so you're awake again. I... I don't feel well. Is it because of what's in the trunk compartment? She's dead. I told you not to get out of the car. What are you going to do with me? What do you think? Please. Sorry, sister. Got to take your medicine. Oh, no. Better not make any trouble. I'll try to make it as easy for you as I can. They say that when a person loses all hope, subconsciously he seeks refuge in sleep. That's what must have happened to me. I must have dozed or, or perhaps I fainted, I don't know. But I awoke with a start at the sound of brakes. I sat up straight and saw that we stopped in front of a small field stone house. 
Why are we stopping here? I'm out of gas. Oh. Come on. We're going in. The sign on the door said Roger Bryce, M.D. A doctor's house. I began to feel a spark of hope. There might be a chance. I'll do the talking. Is that clear? Uh, yes. Where's the bell? Oh. Must be awake. There's a light in the parlor. How do you do? Good evening, Dr. Bryce. Yes. Can I help you? I'm terribly sorry to disturb you, Doctor, but my sister and I were heading for Carstairs, and we seem to have gotten lost. And we're out of gas. His sister? He was passing us off as brother and sister. Now I knew why he hadn't cut my throat as he had that service station man's. He was carrying me for protection. I was his passport through the police court. His sister. I'm afraid I can't be of much help to you. I'm seven miles from the nearest town. And I haven't any spare gasoline. Come in, won't you? Why, yes, thank you. We will. I wonder if I could offer you my hospitality for the night. Oh, that would be imposing. Not at all. I have two rooms that aren't being used. Oh, really? Oh, I... come. I insist. I'd hoped for a chance to talk to Dr. Bryce alone. Just a word to warn him. But Taylor never left us alone for a minute. He insisted coming into my room. To make sure, he said, that it was comfortable enough for me. Then he took the doctor by the arm and went out with him. Good night, sis. And sweet dreams. I was alone. Free of the presence of John Taylor. I had another lease on life. I waited. My heart pounding. Give them both a chance to retire. Then I slipped off my shoes. And in my stocking feet, I stole across the room. And inched my door open... Slowly, carefully, I stepped out into the corridor and turned right toward the doctor's room. What's the matter, sister? You weren't thinking of going anywhere, were you? I wanted a drink of water. A drink of water, huh? In case you didn't know it, there's a water pitcher on your dresser. Oh, I didn't see it. Good night, sister. I turned around and went back into my room. It was no use. If I attempted to warn Dr. Bryce, Taylor would probably kill us both. I turned out the light in my room. I knew he was watching my transom. Then I lay down on the bed. How long I lay there, I don't know. Perhaps I slept, perhaps not. But I heard that slight creak as my door began to inch open. The blood chilled in my veins. Slowly the door came open. I lay fascinated, unable to move. Vaguely, I saw the outline of the hand and the knife it held. I, I wanted to scream, but I couldn't. 
slowly he came toward the bed. Now he stands over me. He raises the knife. I see I rolled over on the bed just as the knife slashed down. I rolled off the bed and cowered in a corner. That horrible figure came around the bed after me with a knife afraid. I strained my eyes to see there was a vague shape on the floor and another weaving around the room. Who? Which one was it? Doctor! Dr. Bryce! Is that you? No, Linda. Uh, it isn't Dr. Bryce. Uh, it's I. John Taylor. John Taylor. Standing there at the light switch. And on the floor lay Dr. Bryce unconscious. With a long gash in his head. I... I had to hit him. With a water pitcher. My eyes turned to Dr. Bryce. I saw the knife still gripped in his right hand. That's Hartley, Linda. Lee Hartley, the killer. It was he who... came in here with a knife? Right, I... I was down the cellar just now. The real Dr. Bryce is down there, dead. And this fellow posed as Bryce when we came to the house. Then, then you, you're not Hartley. <laughs> no, isn't that rich? All the time you thought I was Lee Hartley and I thought you were Helen Hearn. On account of your red hair. But, but the body, the, the body, the red-haired woman. Oh, that's Helen Hearn. This fellow must have killed her back at the service station and stuffed her body in my trunk compartment while I was inside. That all happened last summer. In time, I think I'll manage to forget that night of horror. But it won't be soon. Sometimes in the night I dream that I, I see that awful figure with the knife poised above my throat. And I wake up screaming. But then John takes me in his arms and holds me tight and tells me that everything's all right. You see, I'm Mrs. John Taylor now. Well, what do you know? A happy ending. As for Mr. Hartley, that pleasant killer, he got what he deserved. Yeah, some people never know when they're well off. You should have stayed in jail where they never raise your rent, where they make no charge for meals or for uh, electric current. You see, when you're in jail, everything is free, except you. <laughs> you know, Mr. Host, that's the first happy ending we've had in a long, long time. And I must say, I enjoyed it. Ah, those lovebirds shouldn't have gotten married. It's bad for business, Mary. Now, when she wakes up screaming from a nightmare, she reaches for her husband instead of a hot cup of a Lipton tea. <laughs> well, I'm glad she has a husband to comfort her. There are plenty of other occasions, Mr. Host, when Lipton's tea is welcome. And I don't mean just at mealtimes, either. Lipton's is grand between meals. 
And, of course, it's the perfect beverage to serve when friends and neighbors drop in to visit you. Yes, I guess that's why more people serve Lipton tea than any other brand. And now a word of caution to all amateur detectives. They say that if you give a criminal enough rope, he'll hang himself. But if you give some criminals enough rope, they might tie you up. Oh, by the way, this month's Inner Sanctum mystery novel is Puzzle for Wantons by Patrick Quentin. Yes, and next week's Inner Sanctum story, directed by Hyman Brown, and brought to you by Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup. Next week's story is about a lonely man who falls in love with a mannequin in a store window. But gee, fella wants a real girl. So he tries to make her come to life. And what do you know? He finds he has to kill her first. <laughs> well, now it's time to close the squeaking door, so... Good night. Pleasant dreams. <laughs> Folks, these busy days, we all want to save time when we prepare meals, and yet we don't want to sacrifice that good homemade taste. Well, the answer to that is Lipton's noodle soup. You see, Lipton's takes no time to prepare, and yet it has a real fresh-cooked chickeny flavor. Yes, it tastes just like the chicken noodle soup you'd make right in your own home. Lipton's is economical, too. It costs less and makes more than canned soups. So, folks, don't forget to serve Lipton's noodle soup. And don't forget to tune in next Tuesday night for another Inner Sanctum Mystery. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. If you're familiar with the famous radio suspense episode on a country road, you may have wondered where you were going for a while on that particular road in terror by night but you veered off in another direction for a road trip with what? A happy ending. Not a common occurrence in the inner sanctum. The story came from September 18, 1945, thanks to Lipton tea and chicken noodle soup. And it's the end of the road for this week. I'm Norman Gilliland. Be with me for more excursions in sound next week, including The Six Shooter and Dragnet from Skywave Audio Theatre.